Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the podcast. We are supported by Proper Design Works for all your custom clothing and embroidery needs. Look no further than Proper Design Works. Uh, they've got two incredible aspects to their business. It's two things that they do really well. They do big orders for all sorts of different ideas and situations and requirements of incredibly cool clothing. T-shirts, hats, patches, hoodies, sweatshirts. Uh, if you have a logo, an idea, a brand, a saying, something you want to get on a piece of clothing that expresses yourself for multiple different reasons. Why can't I talk today? Uh, multiple different reasons. I go head right now at Proper Design Works on Instagram. You'll know what I'm talking about. For example, are you a new business and you want to get your logo onto your T-shirt to do some free advertising? Everybody looks sharp. Everybody sees your logo. Two birds, one T-shirt. Boom, done, right? Uh, are you a sports team and you need a new jersey? You need a new beer-chugging shirt? Uh, these are things that Proper Design Works can help you out with because they can do big orders. They can do, like, the whole league, right? Or they can do, like, two or three of the teams. Or they can do your team, right? Like, they... 100 t-shirts, 50 patches. These things are not foreign to the guys at Proper Design Works. They're mad geniuses with sewing machines. That's really what's going on there. The second aspect of the business is the custom clothing side. If you've never had someone design something for you, it is a lot of fun. You get to play jazz, right? You get to make shit up with whatever clothing design you've got going on in your head. And you get somebody who wants to make you happy because they want to see you wear it bespoke tailored pair of jeans that fit your frame perfectly uh a hoodie with a couple weird zippers and some weird accoutrement you know if whatever you're thinking of and you're not really confident with a sewing machine you can get a tailor you, you, there's a there's a place in the city that will make you custom clothing and you won't look like 50 other people right that's pretty cool so whether you need a lot of things or a few things head to at proper design works on instagram to know what i'm talking about and then when you're ready to order it's info at properdesignworks.com. Again, that is info at properdesignworks.com to place your first order. Second, we are supported by Bodegos, a global food eatery in the heart of the Exchange District in our hometown here of Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, Bodegos, in short, is like a global food eatery. It's, your, it's a great it's fun looking, awesome open kitchen environment, right? But they offer different foods from different parts of the world. So you can get like your pitas, your flatbread pizzas, soups and salads from different pockets of the world, uh, stir fries, like old school fish and chips. They've got a lot to offer and it's all locally sourced and it's really healthy too. It's made with fresh ingredients, nothing packaged and, you know, shipped from halfway around the world and who knows what, what's inside of that thing after it's all said and done locally sourced, locally raised Manitoba product is Bodegos. They are from here. They're, they're not a chain, nothing wrong with a chain, but we love, we love small businesses in this province. And I, right now we need to support them. So next time you're downtown, you're perusing around, you're adventuring out after having, you know, done, done, hopefully all the things we can do to prevent another crazy outbreak of COVID. Um, go to Bodegos, have a night out, have a great meal, go check out some of the live entertainment in the area, go have a drink somewhere else, but go to Bodegos first. Uh, 211 Bannatine in the heart of the Exchange District in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So that's for anybody traveling through too. You know, you want to order like into your hotel room or something, Bodegos, skip the dishes, they're there. But go go see them, like go for a walk, get out, stretch your legs. So uh, a couple announcements before we kick into the show. September 14th and 28th, we are in the lobby of the Park Theater for their cult movie night with Corey and Ninja Cat Productions. If you see an open mic at our table, that means come on over and express your opinion about the movie. We would love to hear your interpretation and your ideas of what we're watching. Cemetery Man is on the 14th. And the 80s animation classic Transformers. 
the movie is on the 28th. That one I'm we're all stupid excited for. There's a lot of people that we know that are coming. So like I said, if you see an open mic, that means come on over, say hello, talk to us about movies, right? That's that's, that's what we're there for. Uh, so that's that. Uh, this week on the show, I got lucky. Uh, Sean Garrity, Winnipeg writer-director of some fantastic films, um, Inertia, Lucid, My Awkward Sexual Adventure, Borealis, and his new one, I propose we never see each other again after tonight. It is a ode to Winnipeg and all things we are. Um, brief synopsis. It's a rom-com. I call it a love story. He calls it a rom-com. Uh, but it is a truly classic love story between a Filipino girl and a Mennonite boy in a town called Winnipeg. Uh, it's still going for another week. So if you can get to the movie theater, if you're capable of going to the movie theater, support a local film made by a local film person this is part of our making movies with manitoban series um kind of trying to flip things up for you guys so it's not the same thing all the time little debate here little interview there so that is who is on the show we got to talk about him getting into film and how it all started he's traveled the world um and he's got a great way of telling really truthful stories that hit you in the heart i was crying i was laughing again i implore you Please go see I Propose. We never see each other again after tonight. It is at Northgate Cinema and uh, Cinema Plex on McGilvery, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Um, hmm. That's it. That's, the, that's, that's all the adult stuff. That's all the stuff we have to do. Now we get to let you listen, and I'll shut the fuck up. Uh, so, like I always say, I'll give you the real, and you enjoy the show. Sean Garrity, how are you? How are you? How are you? (laughs) So I figure with everything that we do, we always like to start at the beginning. So um, born and raised in Winnipeg, or are you an outsider? Uh, No, I I mean, I was born here, um, but uh, we moved around quite a bit. I lived in a whole bunch of places, Uh, lived up in the Northwest Territories, and uh, I actually lived in a town... For, for one's formative years, you know, that grade one to grade four when, you know, the world takes on a kind of a mythology that you carry with you for the rest of your days. Yes. Um, I was living in a little town that no longer exists. It was sort of four kilometers away from Rivers, Manitoba. Okay. And it was an experimental town. In what sense? Well, they had they it had been an Air Force base. Oh. Back in the Second World War where they trained um, pilots. Um, especially pilots using, you know, gliders as opposed to airplanes. Interesting. Uh, and so it was like that military style house that used to be over here at Keniston and Grant. Okay. I know the one. Uh, yeah. Right. The whole, the whole town was like that. Uh, after the war, I shut it down. Um, and in the 1970s, uh, Pierre Trudeau told his then minister of Indian and Northern affairs, Jean Chrétien, to set up a project that would take uh, aboriginals who were leaving reserve and ending up in the city and ending up running into trouble because of lack of skills and experience. And There was a program like that at yeah, one point? Yeah, there was this program where they would come to this town, this experimental town, uh, and the town had a couple of factories set up, Edson trailers and Sakini bikes. Wow. And, and, and so aboriginals coming off reserve would get work at these factories to get 
job skills and job experience that they could then take into the city. And the, the idea was that they would land here for a, a couple years and that the factories would eventually work them up to management positions. And eventually these would be factories that were entirely run by Aboriginals who could then go to the city and be like, yeah, I did this job, I did this job, I did this job, I was a manager and I'm ready to work. If that's what's something Sean, that they were I should you not, I have said this time and time again in conversations about how to fix problems in Canada. And was like, this would be a great idea. This is mind-blowing to me that this actually existed. Yes. Well, now you'll 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 then quake in your boots to hear the tragic uh, end of the story. Of course. Um, which is that the town uh, was run by a guy who was the kind of point person for the federal government. Eventually, the factories sort of came to him and they worked out a deal where they said, listen... Uh, the government is paying the wages of these aboriginals for like the first six months and then we're expected to pick up the slack. We don't want to pay anything. Of course. So we're not going to work them up to management positions and we're not going to pay for any of their training and we're going to try and convince them after six months that they should should sort of move on and we want you to keep mum about that. One assumes some money changed hands in order for that to happen. Envelopes of cash. Right. And uh, yeah, after a couple of years when nobody was working their way up to a management position and no one was sticking around for longer than six months, um, you know, scandal erupted and the press moved in and it was a giant and the whole town just shut down in in scandal and sadness. I went back. um, My wife was, of course, very interested in the story of this experimental town. So I took her back a little while ago. We did a Manitoba road trip. It's now a uh, a llama farm operated by a guy with an Australian accent. That's awesome. Yeah, most of the houses are gone. Somewhat happy ending. <laughs> llamas, Australians. <laughs> That's happy for the llamas. Yeah, the, because they're those military houses as well. They would just pick them up and, and move them. Yeah, put them on the back of a truck and move them, leaving yeah. the basements behind. So we parked uh, my car at my old basement, uh, and we were careful not to fall in. And, and walked, <laughs> That's awesome. walked around this town of kind of upside down houses, right? All these basements so and driveways. Weird. Yeah, it was very freaky. Where, and where is Rivers roughly located? Is it? It's sort of half an hour northwest of Brandon. Okay. All right. So in literally in the middle of some nowhere area. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty okay. much. All right. Yeah. Um, when, where'd you go to school? Uh, yeah. Then I came here, uh, here being Winnipeg and, uh, you know, I, I I grew up in the People's Republic of Charleswood. And, uh, I, I you know I went to uh, St. Paul's eventually, sure, um, as one does. And uh, then I uh, I was really interested. I think like a lot of Winnipeggers are at eighteen. I was interested in just flying out of this place. Yeah, like I wanted to. You know, at the time, especially, you turn on the TV, you go see movies, uh, and you listen to music, and it's like everything that happens in the world happens. Not here. Yeah. Somewhere that's not here. We're, vo- we're watching it go by. Yeah. We're, I'm watching the world and, and I see Winnipeg reflected precisely nowhere. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I turned 18, man. I packed my things and I went to live in India for a year. Oh, hello, uh, Steve Jobs. <laughs> did he do that as well? <laughs> Steve Jobs? Did as well, yeah, yeah. 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 I lived in India for a year. I and feel it's the place where a lot of people go. There's a lot of religion. There's a lot of spirituality. It's a place to, you know, the eat, pray, love, find your life, do that thing. And I think that's awesome. I, I missed that. So it was, it was, I mean, it was uh, fantastic. I feel like India is a place, you know, it, if you can generalize a whole billion people. But I mean, it feels like a place where every, everything is turned up to 11. 
Really? Yeah, you remember that joke from yeah, the, from yeah. the right? But this one goes. But to this 11. one goes to eleven. Yeah, that's that. For me, that was India. Like, like the colors and the music and the people and the food and everything's just up to eleven, right? Like it's like everything has so much flavor and the music is everywhere and it's so awesome and everything's so colorful <laughs> and it's just, and and you go into a street and it's clogged with traffic and people does it, and does it look like a Wes Anderson movie? Like, does it look like? No. Darjeeling Limited. At oh all. my God! Like, no, 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 no. Is that so? That's a rip off of it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No. It's it's just it's it seems to the outsider, which is you know where I kind of remained for my year in India. To the outsider, it uh, it it just seems like chaos, and yet it works. Yeah. So you know, if if you ever want to feel like you really don't understand anything about the world, <laughs> India is a good place to start. <laughs> Mother of civilization and all internal knowledge. Okay. Cool. Uh, what did you do there? You just mucked around, traveled. Yeah, it was. I was an exchange student, so okay. they put me in school. I had to wear a little uniform, um, and I was in school. And I, you know, I sat down uh, with the principal when I first arrived, and she said, "Okay, so here we have three streams. We have the science stream, and we have the economics stream, and we have the arts stream." And I was just putting up my hand for my stream, and she said, "Except that no one wants to study the arts, so we don't offer the art stream here." So that's a ripoff. <laughs> So you can choose between economics and science. And I guess she saw it in my face. She was like, if neither of those suit you, you should go for economics. It's easier. <laughs> How is economics uh, easier than science? At least has some, you know, backbone and civilization where economics guess, is numbers. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, there was just no way I could compete with a bunch of kids from India in grade 12 okay. at science. Yeah. I just, oh, yeah. Right. Okay. You're a little out of your, you're, yeah. you're, you're out of your element, Donnie. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I wouldn't have been ready for that. So yeah. So I went into the economics stream at St. Joseph's High School in a place called uh, Valsa. Uh, in Gujarat, India. Okay, I lived there for a year, and it, right. was, it was uh, it was a wonderful, life changing experience. It was great. It does. It's it sounds like it for sure. When did you kind of find yourself coming back to Canada and getting into film? Oh, it was the year after that. Actually, I was in. You know, a lot of people say, you know, what what what, what made the decision for you to go into filmmaking? And for me, it was my parents. Okay, uh, my mother. Really? Well, because I was in India and I think they feared, you know, I had long hair and I was living in India and I think they thought, oh, <laughs> he's never coming home. <laughs> yeah, we see where this is going. I think it's what they thought. And so they they sort of said, uh, we're thinking about university for you and uh, we just, we just want to kind of get going on that. Uh, so, you know, is there an application we could submit on your behalf so that you like get into university when you get back? And I was like, you know, I don't know. I'm sort of really interested in theater and I'm really interested in um, like the plastic arts and in um, painting. And uh, and I'm also really interested Something in tangible in, yeah. in music. OK. Uh, and I'm not really decided what I want to do. And I think maybe I'd like to go and study, you know, down east because the universities at the time uh, were much better there for, for the fine arts. Uh, and so my parents sent me an application for film school. And they said, we did some thinking and we thought, <laughs> we thought there's music and there's acting and there's visual art elements in film. It's a melting pot of everything yeah, you want. If you can't decide. Yeah. And I think what they were secretly thinking was musician equals penniless, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> pa painter equals penniless. Actor equals penniless. Yeah. So maybe if he gets into film, we won't have to support him for the rest of his days. Way to go, mom. Yeah. So I signed up for film school and went to film school. Where'd you go? Uh, York University. York. Yeah. Okay. In Toronto. All right. How long is film school? It's like, you know what? I did three years of film school. Um, and then I decided that 
they couldn't teach me anything, man. Those teachers, I knew more than them. You know, what do they know? Hello, Kevin Smith. <laughs> so, so <laughs> I, uh, I, I quit film school and I went to live in South America. Uh, I lived in Argentina, actually. As, as you do. As one does. Yeah. I was very interested in, in actually filmically what was going on in Argentina at the time. Um, it's even more interesting now. But at the time, I was kind of interested in Latin America. I was interested in Latin American film. Mexico felt too close. Brazil was... Dangerous? Uh, no, no. It was, no. Well, you know. You yeah. know yeah. When you're from Winnipeg, it's... Everything's dangerous. Yeah, where's, Winnipeg. where's dangerous, right? <laughs> so I... I No, it was it was actually... It was the language. I was more interested in learning Spanish than Portuguese. Okay. Because uh, I thought, where do you speak Portuguese? Brazil and Portugal. Yeah, you're limited. To, yeah. yeah. Is it yeah. Angola? Do they speak Portuguese in Angola? I think there's one place in Africa where they also speak or- Portuguese. Yeah. I know they speak French in, in some... Like French is predominant over there more than any other language. Yeah, there's but, a couple yeah. languages swimming around. Yeah. Anyway, but I sort of thought Spanish would be a, a language that would be more useful. So I knocked both Mexico and Brazil off the list, and Argentina, it makes a lot of movies, a lot of very interesting movies, and has a very interesting history in filmmaking, okay. uh, including, you know, Germans after the war bringing, yes, yeah. bringing over like a whole laboratory and developing a film that had an emulsion on each side and really interesting stuff. Um, so it wasn't just a hideout for Nazis. No, some, they, some good things. They did, did some. From, they did okay, some stuff cool. when they were there. You know, um, it, and then Kodak yes, you know, came yeah. in and shut everything down. Yeah, yeah. bought you out. Cannot make yes. better products than we can. Bought out everything and shut it all down. But I was uh, living there for a couple years, um, and uh, again, I had a, a lovely time and again, life changing sort of experience. Um, and then I came back to Canada, and I decided I wanted to go to Japan. And there was, you know, these programs you can go over to Japan and they put you in a school to teach English. And yes. They, they, they last. Quickest way to Japan. Yeah. And I thought I really wanted to do that. But I had to have a university degree and I, you know, told my York professors to all stuff it. But I had a year that I needed to do. So, yeah. so <laughs> I, I went back and I was like. All right, fine. Sorry, guys. Could I like <laughs> drop in and do my last year? Actually, though, I did, you know, I did. I said I want to do a last year. I don't want to do a production class. And end up holding a boom for somebody and getting a credit as a filmmaker. I said, I, I'm very interested after living in Argentina for two years. I'm very interested in doing a documentary about the history of the military dictatorship that everyone kind of carries around as a very personal history. And this idea of a, of a personal history, because when an official history isn't written properly, the history kind of lives in all of these little individual stories that all seems to never and, thought of it like that. Yeah, and I was very interested in that idea because I mean I I met all my friends in Argentina all had stories of an era where they were just kids, but they still had the stories. Yeah. Um and I thought that was really interesting. So I, I made a document, but I so I told York, don't put me in a production class. I want like an independent study class and I'm going to go back to Argentina with all of your gear. <laughs> um and I'm going to shoot this documentary. Uh and they said, uh, "Okay." So, yeah, so I, I went back and I shot uh, a piece about, uh, I mean, essentially about the dictatorship and the history of the dictatorship and how people carry it around. And it focused a lot on torture. And we ended up giving, I think Amnesty International still has it as well really? as, a, yeah, there's a place in Toronto called the Center for Victims of Torture. I think they still show it as well. Oh, um, so like if you go to an exhibit, they've got that film playing in the background. Yeah. They, there's a story that you sit and watch. For, yeah. Okay. Or they have it in their library. Sometimes yeah. they have events where they show it and, um, uh, anyway, so yeah, so I I did that and finished that year of you know and got my degree, uh, and then I was ready to go to Japan. Okay, so then I I went to Japan for three years and uh, it was fabulous and I you know taught English at a high school and played bass in a blues band and <laughs> uh, made a couple of short films while I was over there. And uh, what's filmmaking like in Japan? Being in, being an outsider and like, is it what's how does it change? Well, it's all in Tokyo. Okay, and, and I was not in Tokyo. So I uh, ended up 
in a in a beautiful place that I chose to live in. They asked me where I wanted to go, and I told them, and they they put me pretty close, uh, which is on the South Island of Kyushu. Um, and, oh wow! Yeah, and it was lovely. It's very close to Korea. It's very close to China. It's kind of tropically. It's got you know volcanoes and stuff at the bottom, and it's where it's where as a kid I watched Godzilla romp around yeah, in the cities. Gonna, and, yeah, it sounds like where the where the the, the fighting monster movies yeah. would be filmed. Yeah. Monster Island, I'm sure, was nearby. Okay, <laughs> um, and so uh, and so that was great. I mean, you know, the films that I ended up making there, short films, were just using people who I met who were interested in filmmaking. There wasn't really a scene as such. There were a couple of like interesting groups that watched films, right? That yeah. watched experimental films. There was another group that watched exclusively French movies, uh, <laughs> and we'd get together. And most of it was an excuse to drink. <clears throat> sure, yeah, because uh, it's Japan. Um, <laughs> Not just in karaoke <laughs> bars everywhere else. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, you know that w- that was also a very formative uh, time. When did you? realize that filmmaking was something you wanted to do as a career versus something you were you you like you went to film school like everybody who goes and does their career I'm I never went to higher education so I'm not too familiar with it but I assume that at some point you go okay this is it because you're not a hundred percent sure while you're in it doing it learning it that this is I mean some people are I would imagine but did you have like one of those like aha moments where you were like this is not this is not kids anymore I want to do this as a living well, what it was really was uh, a feeling that I couldn't, like my 20s, as I've just kind of outlined to you, I spent most of my 20s with a backpack on, yeah, tromping around. Learning the world. Yeah, and having a great time, like a great time. Um, I'm jealous. Just by listening. <laughs> India, India, me and my wife wanted to go to Japan this year, and we were like, I think we need to book a guide because I'm a problem child to go traveling with. I can get a little broody and pouty. So she was like, I don't want to be in an area where no one speaks English. And mm. I mean, I'm, now I'm sure they do, but she was like, I just don't want to be in that situation. So it's, to, to, you're shaking your head at me. No, like no, they don't speak English. Okay. All right. So it was a smart idea. Anyways, go on. Um, so, uh, I, I came I came back because I was sitting on a beach in Indonesia. You know, one of the great things about Japan, of course, is that very close know, to other. Yeah, yeah. two hours this yeah. way, two hours that way, in an airplane, and you're in all these amazing spots. So we were, I was sitting on a beach in Indonesia uh, with a good friend of mine, and just kind of thinking, "Wow, I'm 29. Uh, all I've done is bum around and you know drink and have fun, and uh, so maybe I should Boo like fucking who, Sean? <laughs> you know, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but there was that I, sense yes, of you know, definitely. like I should maybe do something with my life, or like, am I going to be here t- like 39, turning 40, going same I, spot, ass cheeks in the beach? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah, mean, totally. I did meet a guy who we were celebrating his birthday. This is a side, but we'll get back sure, to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did meet a guy in Nagoya, and we were celebrating his birthday. This American guy who was a friend of a friend. Um, and, uh, we went to a bar and we were celebrating his birthday and he looked like he was 40 something. But, uh, when we clinked glasses together, he was turning 55 and he had just been in Japan kind of teaching English and chasing skirts and getting drunk for like ever. And he looked a lot younger cause you know, he said, you know, if I'd had a corporate job in America, I'd look 75 right yeah, now. Burn out. But at the same time, I kind of, it was a moment of like, wow, is that going to be me when I'm 55? Like, it, and it seems like fun, but... You know, so so substance. Yeah, there was a moment on that beach in Indonesia where I was like, okay, I'm yeah. just I, I I'm 29, so maybe I should, you know, I went to school for filmmaking. Maybe I should try to be a filmmaker. Okay, uh, or a bass player, which is my other thing that I do. Okay, uh, and I and I felt very much like I wanted to come back home to do it. 
because, you know, everywhere else that I lived, one thing that, that really struck me was that I am an outsider here. And I make friends, and that's my role. I don't feel like I'm being excluded or anything, but my role when I get together with my friends is I'm the outsider. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And people are like, turn to me and say, hey, what's it like in Canada? Or what's it like in Winnipeg? Or here, this just happened. Does that happen back where you're from too? And yeah, you, have, have, you have a different perspective. Yeah. And so I kind of thought if I want to make films, I felt, that had kind of a real authenticity and that were able to kind of look beyond the surface of anything, I should maybe go back to where I'm from and try to tell stories from there. Uh, so I moved back here and, uh, and I sort of made a, made a pact to myself cause I'd saved like in Japan, they pay you so well to teach English. Like I've I heard, I did my very best to drink it all and I couldn't. <laughs> and I came back with like 50 grand, which like, it, you know, in Winnipeg, that's like, you could live for 10 years on that. Right. Dude, that's, that's investment money. That's, that's huge. That's bed bugs film money. Totally. Right. So like, what, what I decided was I sort of thought, okay, I've, I've got a little, uh, I've got a little, uh, nest egg to, to borrow terminology from, uh, ostrich, but Hey, go on. <laughs> I will, um, I won't get a job, quote unquote. I'm not going to work at a bank. I'm not going to work as a security Fuck the guard. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I will work as a bass player or a filmmaker and that's it. Uh, and if I run out of money and I have to get a job to survive, I'll go back to Asia. Like I'll go back yeah. to Japan. I'll go back to uh, the Taiwan it was works. hiring English teachers. Korea is an amazing place that I became addicted to. Sidebar on my last trip to Korea, I was like, wow, trip number 19. I really should have spent more time in this place. <laughs> There's so many times. But I have friends that have done the Korean English teaching thing and they love it. They say the, some of the most complimentary things about Korea. Oh, it's the, the hidden like treasure of like, who do you know who's like, I'm going on a vacation. I'm going to Korea. Nobody. Nobody. And Nobody. It's, it's amazing. It's it, like wedged right between Japan and China. Like, how could it not be amazing? How do you, and how do you skip over it, right? Like, if you're out there, like my parents have done, they did a, they did China. They didn't go to Korea. I was like, how, you went to Vietnam? Great. Awesome. Like, nothing against, but I have a buddy who works for Samsung. He went to Samsung City. Mm -hmm. And he's like, they're just, they're riding a wave of everything. It's amazing. There. Yeah, it's an, it's an incredible place. Um, and, uh, you know, don't mention it on your podcast because then everyone's going to go and they'll recognize. <laughs> so you didn't hear it here first. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, I, I, I came back and I uh, here and I decided that as I was going to, you know, I was going to either play play bass or, or make movies and that was it. Um, and one night... I was over at my friend's place and we were just jamming and it was like two in the morning. He's a drummer. We were just playing literally in his basement tunes from the old days. Yeah, guy, yeah. guy I went to high school with, right? Jamming out. Um, and he lived in a room, like a house with a bunch of other people as one does. Um, and this guy comes home, one of his roommates who was his piano player, like a professional piano player in Winnipeg working all the time. And he came downstairs and he heard us jamming and he's like, Hey, can I sit in? So he sat in and we played some tunes together. Um, and it was really fun. That Friday, the piano player had a gig and his bass player didn't show. Oh, boy. His bass player actually, as it turns out, went drove to Minneapolis to see Herbie Hancock play. <laughs> and then, you know, kind of calculated, okay, it's a six and a half hour drive if we move fast enough, half an hour for the border, yeah. seven hours before my gig, I'm yeah. leaving. We can do this. Yeah. And started driving south. And, you know, in the States, when you're on the highways, there's, there's like never any signs anywhere. And yeah. so he drove all the way south until he crossed the state line. And then he was like, oops, uh-oh, now I'm 13 hours away from Winnipeg and my gig is in like two hours. Like, I'm not going to make it. Not happening. Right? So he calls this guy with no notice, this piano player. He's like, I can't. I'm not going to be there. Yeah. Uh, and the piano player is like, ah, calls every bass player he knows. Everyone's working. And it gets to this moment where he's like, who was that guy 
in the basement. <laughs> we jammed that. Who was that guy? Yeah, no right? kidding. And so I get this call of like, can you be at this gig in an hour and can you read music? Um, and so I started. Not a big ask at all. Yeah, I was, I was, you know, I was cool with it. So I, I played that gig and yeah, a lot of people were like, hey, who's that guy? Because that's how Winnipeg works. Exactly. Um, and so very in very short order, I had a career as a bass player. And I was playing with, you know, the, the Weird Sisters. And I was playing with, uh, you know, Easily Amused, uh, now Keith and Rennie. And I was playing with, you know, everybody. Yeah. Uh, and it was great. I did about like half a dozen CDs. I did a bunch of touring uh, across Canada. Um, ultimately, on a tour of Saskatchewan, rural can someone, Saskatchewan. Sorry to interrupt you. Can someone yeah. buy your life? Is it for sale somewhere? <laughs> like, can you can you can you get a plan to do this? Go to India, go to Indonesia, live in Korea, come back, trip into being a bass player. Like, this is I. I th- this is some seriously awesome shit. Like, make the movie about your life, man. <laughs> it would be a, be a very boring movie, I'm afraid. No. Um, the no, we were on a rural tour of Saskatchewan, right? This this with the Weird Sisters. Actually, they had booked all these, and they're they paid very well. But I just it was one of these tours where you know touring, of course, mostly sucks. Yeah, it's hard right? on you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and we were you know every day playing a little small town in Saskatchewan, and I remember just thinking like, okay, this is I'm not touring anymore. Yeah, I can't. It was sexy for a minute. Yeah, and, uh, but uh, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't. You know, there's a, a quote from Ray Charles that I love. He was on some Chicago radio station, and the the guy found out how much he was making. He makes he made ten thousand bucks or fifteen thousand bucks, and and the radio station guy was like. You get paid $15,000 to play three hours of music. And Ray Charles was like, oh, no, 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 no. I get paid $50,000 for all the travel and the shitty hotels and horking all the gear. The music is free. Yeah, yeah. It's what I have to put up with to get my job done. Right, to get on stage. And so that that side of touring really kind of eventually wore me down. And I was getting more into making short films and... I had done a couple of music videos for some of the bands I that I did. I did that, yeah. You, that's kind of where you maybe, started. Yeah, yeah, cut your teeth, right? Like, yep. And and you know, the first two music videos that I did got on like high rotation on Much Music. So nice. of course, you know, other bands in Winnipeg are for, like, "Who's that guy?" For anybody listening, what's Much Music, by the way? That, that, that oh, Much. Oh yeah, is that not a thing anymore? <laughs> I. It was a thing for us, but I don't like for kids listening here. Tell them what Much Music is. Well, it's uh, you know, music videos played in between TV commercials, basically uh, on television you know 24 hours a day and someone told me that they never released their ratings because there there were moments on that show where literally across Canada like three people were watching much music really well it just it it sometimes there were three million people watching but because there weren't no shows as such or very few shows it was just non-stop three minutes of entertainment that you could turn on and turn off it was yeah there were moments where like really like literally no one was watching <laughs> that doesn't surprise me now that you look back I mean when they did start to do the shows that's when I mean I started watching it mostly because of like Electric Circus was funny, right? Um, pop up video, pop up video, pop up video is I think should be brought back, and like if someone can fund the channel, I'll pay for a subscription to pop up video because there was so much nonsensical bullshit that came up in those videos. That Hornet is gonna one of us. This you, what, you can hear him just now. I yeah, heard him in my yeah, ear. Yeah. <laughs> He's an angry son of a bitch. Um, but yeah, it was just it was full of. I think that's where I have a lot of bullshit trivia in my mind from like, oh, that's the video. And, and it registered with you because you were watching it, right? But yeah. Uh, so yeah, there was a time when music videos were a huge, they told stories, right? Yeah. Like Garth Brooks doing Thunder Rolls. 
I haven't seen that one. Okay, it, but it's 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 a it's a story of domestic abuse. Wow! Like, a, so you you could tell a story in a music video at some point because they put so much money into them. But then, then you know, music industry went you know digital, and who cares now? Right? <laughs> My daughter cares, man. Really? <laughs> she yeah. Well, it's a, you know they, you get old and you kids are doing what we were doing. I don't know. It's a whole thing, C- yeah. cycle of life, whatever. But. Uh, what I was most excited about, of course, at the time doing music videos was it felt to me like the last refuge of experimental film and surreal sure, film yeah. and a place where you could still do stuff that, you know, that you would never get money for in any other format. Uh, and so I really loved exploring that side of kind of visual storytelling. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, while I was doing those music videos, this is back in the days of film. Right. When I first started making music videos, you had to shoot them all on film. Okay. Um, and film is very, very expensive. Well, yeah. Because if you fuck up, yeah. You fuck up. Well, and yeah. And also because you have to buy the film and then you have to, you know, process the film and develop the film and then oh, you have to okay. transfer the film to video, where, which is where it ends up before it goes on TV. And all of those processes done in labs in Toronto are just stupidly expensive. Um, you know, back in those days, color correction was, you'd be paying $600 an hour to to do color correction, um, which now you can do for free on DaVinci and your laptop, right? Yes. Yeah. But at the time it was, it was crazy expensive. So, uh, we would take film and you'd over order it because you didn't want to be caught at three in the morning, right? Finishing up your music video and running out of film. New tape. Right. Uh, we don't have any guys. Exactly. So you always over order a little bit. Okay. Uh, and so every music video that I did, I'd end up with six to 10 rolls of film. All of a sudden you have stock. So then I started realizing, oh, and when I send the, the, when I send the film into the lab to be processed, they're not like looking at it all. The band's not looking at it all. I mean, if I shot some film left over from one music video and then processed it on the next music video, you know, like you can kind of, no one would really know. No, no. And you know, the, the, the person doing the, the transfer to video might go, wow, that doesn't look much like the rest of the music video. <laughs> I don't know. It's like a, it's a dream sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah. yeah. But, it's a uh, flashback. So, so I did my first couple of short films uh, basically with leftover footage and packaging them with music videos to get them- you How know, upcycled of you. Yeah, wow. Well, yeah, it, yeah, it, it was very uh, very green. Yeah. Back in the day. <laughs> um, and uh, I was very lucky that my first film uh, ever, my short film, it was called Middle, and it was about- Winnipeg. Yeah, man. It's, I've, I read about your original shorts just before I came over today, and uh, I, I wanted to ask you about that. I was like, because Middle Province, Middle Coast, Middle was, and I was like, okay, everything you do has this charming sense of Winnipeg in it. So I'm like, I'm betting the first one <laughs> is a love story to his, to, to his hometown. Well, and, you know, and it always struck me as one of the central uh, kind of paradoxes of Winnipeg in a way that we are in geographically the middle of every, like the middle of North America. You go on like, your way to Steinbeck, man. It's right there. Yeah, yeah. You are the middle part of Canada. Yeah, the very center of Canada, like horizontally. Yeah, yeah. But even vertically, horizontally, all of North America, we're like pretty much dead center. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I traveled to other countries and the people are like, where are you from? I'd be like, take North America, put yeah. your finger in the dead center, you're going to be pretty close. Yeah. Right? Um, look under your finger. There yeah. we are. You squashed us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? But- uh, so the film was kind of about how Winnipeg was so, so middle, so center, so prairies, you know, at the square bottom of this province. Yeah. And yet my experience of Winnipeg is that everybody's just on the 
edge of like everyone's so weirdly cool like but weird weird yes you know i grew up all my friends and most of the people that i know and most of the winnipeg bands that i listened to everyone was just pushing the edges of obscurity is a thing here absolutely in everything that we do like entertainment food it's just i don't it's our it's in our secret sauce totally yeah i think i think if i had never known guy madden and someone had said it introduced me to his work and said where does he come from i'd be like <laughs> i got a pretty good guess <laughs> right uh because that's the kind of and so that dichotomy of being in the middle and yet being not in the middle yeah. really and and also not being in the middle like again that thing that we talked about earlier when you watch media in this country we are not in the middle of that no we're, we're at the edge of that exactly right i mean there, i remember seeing uh, jesus de Montréal, this great film from quebec and you know the priest was very worried or one of the priests the central character not the central character one of the central characters was very worried about being sent off to Winnipeg, <laughs> which, you know, obviously is a code for the edge of the nothingness, yeah. the edge of the empire. You're on the precipice, right? man. Yeah. Like it's, it's, we're, it's, we're going to send you way out to Winnipeg. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that dichotomy to me was very interesting. And so I made this kind of experimental-ish film, but that was also a comedy uh, built around a couple of jokes that we thought were really funny. Um, and it, uh, it, uh, I sent it out to a bunch of film festivals and everybody turned it down. Um, except uh, a couple of film festivals that like you've never heard of, so it got it got second prize obscure film festivals uh, per se, if you could imagine, yeah, such a thing. Uh, second prize comedy category at the Garibaldi Ski, Sea and Sky Film Festival. Okay, where's right? that? It's in Garibaldi, man. What do you mean? Where is it? Oh, oh I don't know where Garibaldi is. Sorry, <laughs> it's out in BC somewhere. I don't okay, know where it is either. Okay, okay, okay. I'm, I'm joking. You're of the course. guy who backpacked. I'm the one who's been in Winnipeg his life. <laughs> and then, and then I we we also won a prize for I can't remember what best 16 millimeter film or something at uh, at the Cabbage Town Film Festival. And I was joking with a friend of mine who used to teach at Red River. Kenton Larson. Yes, I follow him on Twitter. I know Kent, yeah. Uh, who teaches communications. Yeah. Uh, good friend of mine from high school. Yeah. And I was joking around that, like, oh, this is, you know, this is the sum of my ambition, these two, like, <laughs> you know. And he was like, no, dude, you should call the newspapers and tell them that you won those prizes. And I was like, why? why? So they can mock me? Yeah. And he was like, oh, no. He was like, entertainment reporters, if there's a local story and you bring them the story, they don't have to, like, get off their asses and go yeah. find it. They'll take the story. Like, they will take it and they will print it. And I was like, what? Really? So I called them and I left a message. And sure enough, within two minutes, someone called me back. And they were like, where are these film festivals? And who are you? And where are you from? And the next uh, day, there was like this very large feature in the entertainment section about local filmmaker wins prizes in Toronto and Vancouver. <laughs> the implications being yeah. that it was the Toronto and Vancouver Film Festival. Totally. Which, course, yeah. It was not. Yeah. Um, the little Garibaldi. Yeah, the Garibaldi in Cabbage Town. But the result of that was that when I went back to Manitoba Arts Council to apply for some some money for my next film, there was a sense of like, oh yeah, we know you. Yeah, we, you yeah, newspa- club, yeah, you were in the newspaper. Yeah, right. Interesting. L- local filmmaker. Suddenly, I'm a local filmmaker because I had a film that won some prizes, recognized by outsiders. Which is, <laughs> that's the important thing. Yes. Um, and so, you know, the, I, the next film that I made, I actually had a budget. I had like $45,000, which at the time felt like a lot of money to make a film. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we got the big crew and we had dollies and we built our locations and I, I was able to really design it. Uh, and we made this, uh, you know, much larger production and that you know led to another film and then I was planning to do a fourth film and at the time I was very influenced by um, Bruce Sweeney who's a Vancouver filmmaker and he himself had discipled under Mike Lee in England uh, but very much in the school of John Cassavetes all these guys are doing very similar kind of work which is letting actors improvise 
Ah, uh, not so, keeping to the page. Right. Well, no, not having a page. Oh, not at all. Okay. Right? <laughs> uh, so basically kind of designing a story. I mean, there are various diff- different ways of approaching it, but essentially the, the concept at the core is, um, you know, actors, if they are looking at a text and they're using Stanislavski or some other method to hack into the meaning of the text and try to get inside, you know, there's a real journey for them and some are better than others. But when you're improvising, you start inside. Yeah. Like you're there. As soon as the camera's rolling or you're on a stage and you're improvising, you're in the scene and trying to figure out who you are and kind of working your way out. From, exactly. Yeah. Build it from the inside. And so oh. I always thought that that was really cool. And then especially as a musician who, I mean, there's a lot of improv in music. And yeah. I find that a lot Jazz of times... is improv at its core. Yeah. And backing up a singer-songwriter who doesn't know what he's doing <laughs> has a lot of improv elements. Yeah. That, that, and they struck me as, in music, very transcendental moments. Uh, you know, when, when everyone is using this language, yes. which is not... English or any kind of spoken language and we're communicating with each other on stage because no one knows what's going on. You're in the flow. Yeah. And I thought, oh, it would be so cool to catch that on camera. That that That's what kind of led me to Mike Lee and Bruce Sweeney and all these guys. And then when I saw what they were all doing, I was like, that's really cool. I want to do a, I, I want to do that, but I want to do a different version of it. And my version was, and this again is planning my fourth short film, right? My version was, uh, I started with a concept, which was a romantic comedy that would be a love triangle, but with four people in it. Um, where everybody loves everybody else, but that's never reciprocated, right? So nothing ever... And, and I sort of thought, wouldn't it be cool to make it kind of an anti-romantic comedy where, <laughs> as opposed to people who you go, oh, I wish they would get together. And in the end, they do. Yeah, right. I thought, wouldn't it be better if it was one of those couples that we've all seen where you're like, oh, t- those people need to break up. Like, yeah. they're so bad for one another. Everybody has that friend in their group. Yeah, and so I thought, wouldn't it be great if like the goal of my romantic comedy was to break everybody up? <laughs> I love it. Right, and so I, I started down a road. I got some local actors, and we started improvising in my basement. I was paying them with my my ghastly homemade wine, uh, which which would give them terrible headaches, and yet somehow they kept coming back. Um, <laughs> Your alcohol content maybe was a little <laughs> little too high. <laughs> really, really horrible stuff. Uh, and we spent six months basically improvising this story, creating. Uh, yeah, creating. And I started. It, I kept secrets from them. Was my method. I kind of wrote the story, but I didn't tell them what it was. And then we improvised the scenes chronologically, and I let them discover on camera these kind of story elements and I'd have the characters themselves keep secrets from one another and and then dump them on each other on like in front of the camera so the moment was the, the moment it, yeah. the moment was the moment it wasn't Absolutely. rehearsed it was it's yeah. tr- it, everybody's experiencing it for the first time and we're watching it hey, that's you want to talk about experimental film that's playing I, right? lo- I I love it and actors not all actors but the actors that I ended up working with really loved it too yeah right um, well, because I, I guess their craft is really being used and they're driving it as opposed to traditionally, correct me if I'm wrong, a director's like, I need you to do this or I want to pull more of this out of you. It's like, no, here's 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 the reins. Yeah. Do it. Right. So that's what they went to school for. Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, when we do a take two and a take three, they didn't have to. There wasn't a lot of forcing it for them. They were able to remember what that emotional state was in yeah. take one and just kind of go back there. Um, and, and, and for me to be able to say to them, don't worry about the lines, whatever you said, last take is last take. We have it on the camera already. We got it. Yeah. Don't need it again. Yeah. This time, see where else it, it might take you. Right. Uh, and so we, we ended up with some extraordinary number. I think it was 26 hours or something of video. 
Um, and I took that video and I boiled it down to what was going to be my my script for a short film. <laughs> it ended up being more like a mini series. I was gonna say, <laughs> yeah, no, it came out at like it would if we'd shot that thing, it would have been like a three and a half hour movie. Yeah, right. Uh, and nonetheless, a friend of mine, Brendan Sawatsky, who is a local producer yeah, and I was wanting yep. to produce more at the time, he was just starting out as I was, said, "Hey, man, there's this program we can apply for for people making their first time features. Are you are you working on anything?" And I was like, "Yeah, actually, I've got this beast of a thing that I thought was a short film. <laughs> got a lot of chopping to do. Yeah, it's really it's too long, but um, and we ended up sending it. I actually to to write the final thing because I had all my notes on, scribbled on napkins and whatever else. Uh, to write the final script, I actually went it's to very ch- Kerouac of you, by the way. <laughs> to, yeah, well, also very you know, poverty inspired. Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, I went. Uh, I went back to Japan because uh, I had a friend there. We were staying together. Um, I went back to Japan and I wrote it in this little apartment in Kokura, uh, a city in Japan in the south. And I wrote the whole thing out. Uh, and we j- we just made the deadline, like literally by by ten minutes, uh, because I was sending Brendan pages basically from night because it was night in Japan, yeah, daytime here, change, right? Totally. I was sending him pages and he was printing them out as I was writing them, and he just got the script together and handed it. Luckily, the office was in Winnipeg, and he he sort of handed this thing in. Uh, and the National Screen Institute decided to give us a bunch of development dough and bring us along in their program, and you know. The amazing, awesome. yeah. So we started developing this feature out of nowhere. Uh, this thing that I thought would be a short, uh, and we started developing it, and we went on this amazing uh, program. And this, I really felt that the story notes that we got from our story editors started to really help shape it, and we sort of really found it. Plus, I had the bonus of twenty six hours of source material. Yeah, like whenever I got stuck with how totally. would people react, like how would how would my characters react here? I've been writing it this way, and it's not working. And I go back to the tapes, and I'd be like, oh. That's how they'd react. There they are. Exactly. Let me just write that out, right? And it was so. Um, That's a reverse. Yeah, totally. Essentially, <laughs> totally. Uh, and it's a great way to work. I mean, anyone who's listening who's interested in filmmaking, I strongly advise testing out the waters for yourself on this method and seeing if you like it. Because I mean, the collaboration with actors is so rewarding, uh, and the stuff that you get is so genuine. Out- yeah, genuine. It's also just never what I would write. Like you, you. Yeah. Play, play it with actors and you're like oh I, if I was sitting down and writing it I never would have done it that way totally and that's so much more interesting than what I would have written yeah I, I'm I'm always a big fan of breaking in sketches when the break happens when the genuine hilarity of anything or the gen when you can see or when I hear a note about how a film had like this is an improv scene I'm, I'm always glued to that more than I am yeah okay it's instructional it's off the page and it's a great idea but that moment it's it's lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And so I've always been kind of in pursuit of those moments. And this was kind of an attempt to boil it down to a script. Uh, so we, we got the script in pretty good shape and we were starting to sort of put the money together. Script still needed another pass or two. And yeah. We didn't know exactly how we were going to go about doing it because neither Brendan nor I had ever made a feature. Uh, and we had this magical moment that's only happened to me once in my life, which was then... Prime Minister Jean Chrétien gave a whole bunch of money to Telefilm Canada <sighs> and said, listen, there's an election coming up. I want this money like on the floor somewhere in Canada being, pre- like I need to see films being made. Yeah. 
right? Because they need to be in production when I'm giving my campaign speeches. <laughs> I, now, don't quote me on that. That's not what I imagine he said. I'm not, I, I, I won't quote you, but I'm not going to say you're wrong. <laughs> right? And so we got a call from Telephone Canada. Oh my God, anyone who's a filmmaker listening knows this never happens and certainly has never happened to me since. Telefilm Canada called us and said, hey, we know you guys are developing this movie. Are you ready to shoot it? Because we got some money for you. <laughs> and we were like, of course we are. Fuck off, <laughs> click. Right? Don't fuck with me, buddy. Yeah. yeah, who are you, mom? Yeah. Stop calling. Yeah. But no, we, we so we, we said, of course we are. We weren't, but we said, of course, yes, we could start shooting tomorrow <laughs> if we needed to. Uh, and so we put the money together in like a record period of time. Like really quickly, we suddenly had this whole budget and we were shooting the movie. And the next thing I knew, I was directing my first feature kind of quite by surprise which is inertia which is inertia that's right um and the uh, trailer i'm going home to watch it okay this. like it out of out of everything i watched i really did want to watch your first and your last to get an idea of of everything that you've done of, how, of how i've gone nowhere from the first one to the last fuck one. off <laughs> no man seriously i i absolutely i well we'll get into it but um so inertia is your first feature and it's it it sounds so accidental right it sounds creative yeah. it sounds a journey that you're not prepared for because you're doing it by the seat of your pants not necessarily in that example but you're like let's just put it out there and see if it works and then all of these lovely things come into play for you yeah it was very very lucky uh and and we i brought back i was lucky enough to be able to just bring back my original actors we we got a little bit of pressure to hire some americans or some toronto stars as, yeah as one does but i was like we really don't have the money for that like with what you guys are giving us like i love the money thank you very much it's great we can make our movie but you know we can't hire people outside of winnipeg plus these are the actors who played the roles like in the improv they put it on the screen yeah man it's like, like yeah to ask somebody to then replicate that you might as well have just written it to begin with totally and i was like in a way these these actors are kind of co-authors yes um and i did give them that credit at the end of the movie that's um and so they you know uh we shot it with those actors and it was so great because they just they recognized the lines they had essentially written them together with me i had totally. to change them but um and whenever anything went wrong on set uh, or someone would forget a line or, you know, like a set piece would fall over and they'd have to just sort of roll with it. They were able to improvise because that's how they started it. They were yeah. in character, staying in character. It was really an exciting project. Well, the actor-director relationship, that's, I, I would imagine, the the environment you're creating is what a lot of actors would love to have on the regular. Like, if and, and you know, this is how we've always done it is a big problem in any industry, right? That's the death of your industry. If you're hanging on to, well, no, we do it. We do it this way. Right. Improv is great and all, but that could be expensive or that could be time consuming where you're like, fuck that. I, th this, this is the beauty that can come from it. Yeah. Well, and we really managed to do some, I mean, I was so proud of those actors, man. They really turned in just amazing sort of performances. And, as you know, because you've you've stalked me, yes. Um, the the film ended up in getting the most complimentary way. <laughs> <laughs> the film ended up getting into the Toronto Film Festival, Film Festival, yeah, and, uh, and doing very well there. Best Canadian feature, yeah. We won a prize. Uh, and when they say best Canadian first feature, is that them being like, "This is your first feature"? Yes. Okay. All right. That's a big award to win. Man. It was a big award. Uh, and suddenly, at the end of the Toronto Film Festival, you know, on the last day. Uh, they they told me the night before they said tomorrow morning we're going to give you this prize so we want you to come to the press conference so I go to the press conference and there's that moment that you see in American films where everyone like thrusts a microphone like I literally was standing there with like 30 microphones who's in my filming face. this this must, this must not be real <laughs> I was like what what is what sadly I mean not sadly but I mean as it turned out uh, you know that was 2001 
September, uh, and my film premiered September 12th, 2001. Uh, Holy shit, man. Yeah, so the day before, they'd shut down the film festival uh, while the towers burned. Yep. Um, and nobody nobody from Winnipeg could come out. To, like, I was there from the beginning of the festival because they were giving me a pass and totally. I could watch free movies. Travel, but people could... are trapped in Newfoundland. Yep. Like, yep. Oh, my God. I had a whole bunch of people who said, when's your film showing? September 12th? Okay, we'll fly out the day before. But they didn't. Nope. Uh, and then I got stuck in Toronto. I couldn't get back. I was out there for like three weeks before there was a flight. Really? Well, because they just canceled everything. And then all the guys who have like fat cat cards, you know, yeah. when you're on the plane and the fat cats load first. Yeah. And they, yeah you know, yeah. all those guys. I'm going to refer to that as the fat cat <laughs> card from now on. <laughs> That's, I love that. Right. So the fat cats got to take all the all the flights and get themselves home and the rest of us had to kind of wait. Uh, and so, yeah, I was stuck there for three weeks. But oh, uh, there, there was a lovely, you talked about serendipity with that film. There was a lovely moment of serendipity that I'm I'm very very pleased with, which is the very first scene in the movie. I'm gonna wreck it for you. The very first scene in the movie is this moment where our our two main characters have had sex, and she's trying to sneak out while he's still asleep, um, and so he gets up and he's naked and he comes to the door and she's trying to leave and it's winter in Winnipeg, so he grabs one of her Sorrells. <laughs> Because she can't leave without right, so this is a Winnipeg death trap right there. <laughs> and 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 he's and she's like, it's over. This was just a mistake. Yeah. This was XX. I shouldn't have come back. And he, and he's like, no, no, no. This is you coming back to me. I need. I see you need a break. Yeah. But yeah. This is our moment. This is our rekindling. And she's like, no. Is ex- that Jonas? That's yeah, Jonas. Okay. He's like, uh, yeah. I do a good Jonas impersonation. After all these years, I've seen three movies with him in it already. <laughs> well, two and a half. And I, he, he's, he's. I love him. He's fantastic. I, I'm, I'm also a big fan. So he, he, uh, yeah, he tries to her back to bed and she tries to get him to accept in you know basically what would be the central conflict of the film yes uh, accept that it's over and 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 he's trying to get her to accept that she's just on a break because she's scared of committing but I know he, better he's for there you, for her yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. I bet I know better for you baby and that's kind of how the film starts now when we shot a couple of takes of it my crew who cared about the movie very much and a lot of them actually gave back payments because they were so supportive of the film they're just so so awesome that crew um, said, are you at all worried that you have full frontal male nudity to start your film off and that's going to limit your, you know, your distribution options? And I was like, no, no, I love that. I yeah. mean, I, I love that he's naked, which is emotionally his state for the whole film. This guy wears his heart on his sleeve. I mean, Jonas basically does that in all of his roles and all of his movies. Uh, but she is this mysterious character that has a secret that we're not going to find out till the end of the film. So she's wrapped up like layers of an onion, and she's got you know her, the Winnipeg thing, shirts and sweaters. It's and coat. Yeah, he's completely naked, and she's wrapped, and she's wrapped all tight. wrapped up, right? Yeah. And this is kind of how the characters will develop over the course of the movie. Uh, and so I was like, no, no, no. I mean, it's my central visual metaphor. It's my kind of opening yeah. statement. And they said, well, you should shoot one with his pajama bottoms on, just in case. And I was like, no, just in case, because then in post, you guys are going to put pressure on me to... You're going to CGI the shit out of it, yeah. Or but there wasn't CGI back oh, then sorry, yeah. film. Yeah. But you're going to force me to choose the take with the pajamas, right? Because, And so we fought, and we fought, and my producer came, Brendan came up, and he was like, you know, the crew loves the movie, they love you, they're just trying to do it to support you, man, just shoot the take with the pajamas. And against my better judgment, I did it, and I thought, okay, I'm setting up a real fight for myself in post-production. Yeah. Because everyone's going to try and pressure me to use that take yeah. instead of the full frontal male nudity, which is still, for some reason, taboo in film. Um, and We all have one. <laughs> like, we all have the parts we see on screen. It blows my mind. Yeah, it's, how that's... It's just so... Yeah, yeah. You can murder people. Yeah. You can disembowel them on camera. That's okay. Yeah. But don't you show people naked. saw movies, but you won't let the penis... Yeah. 
free, fly free in the wind. Yeah, as it as it was born to. Yes, <laughs> intentionally. <laughs> so, so, I, but here was the here was the magic hand of serendipity. We sent the film to be processed. It was a very long take, uh, so we could only fit two takes on a reel. Um, because it was like a 10 minute long wow. or a five minute long take and they were 10 minute reels. So Tarantino of you. So, so I, I shot my first two with him naked. We put the reel in the can to be sent off to the lab. I got the next reel out. We shot the pajama take uh, and, we, and we put that in the can and sent it off to Toronto. The next morning we got some very bad news from the lab. One of the reels had been destroyed. I know I'm totally serious. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how the gods stepped in to save me on that one. So the reel that had the pajama take was re- was wrecked. <laughs> Light somehow leaked into it. The whole reel was wrecked. Everything was destroyed. Oh, my God. And so we only had the take of him naked, and so that's what went in the movie. And let me tell you, man, that's what like every review we got, every criticism that was written about the film somehow mentioned that either in their headline or in their first paragraph. It was like the signature of the movie when it went out into the world. It is, I can't wait to see it, but I can only imagine, like, that is very in your face in a lot, on a lot of levels. Yeah. Not just, you know, dick hanging in the wind, but it's, I'm, I'm very glad that that worked out for you. Me too. And then a couple of years later, someone was like, have you seen Forgetting Sarah Marshall? Because they stole your opening <laughs> yeah. scene. It, like 10 yeah. years later, 15 yeah. years later, something that movie has like the exact same opening. It totally does. Cause yeah. he comes around the corner and he's eating cereal and she shows up to dump him. He's and naked and she's dumping him and yeah, yeah it's you the should, same scene. You should make a call. It's the same scene. Yeah, it's totally. They um, totally, they are obviously fans of the movie. They obviously own copies. They probably have pictures of me up in their homes. Yeah, creative license and all that shit, right? <laughs> so Inertia is your first and it's written and directed by you. With the help of. With the help of, sorry, yeah, but just for credit based. Yes. My question goes to you have directed and you have written where do you do you like both one more than the other do you play like where 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 is your I don't see them as different jobs okay um you know i uh i mean they you know obviously they are different in a way but i mean film is not written in in words i mean obviously film is is written in in color and gesture and music yes. and and movement and okay. pacing and that's how you write a film uh and so a script for me is always just kind of a blueprint, especially with this background in improv. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, I look at a film as like, okay, this is a script is kind of like, okay, this is sort of how it kind of has to go. And emotionally, these are the beats that it has to hit. And, you know, I, I get that. This Here's the map. Yeah. That's what the script is. Um, but I've always looked at those two jobs as, yeah, different parts of the same job, which is why I've almost exclusively written my own scripts. Um, and, and why sometimes I have very bad luck with them cause I kind of, I know what I mean. So I just kind of leave them in almost an unpolished <laughs> state cause I know what I'm going to do with it when sure. I get to set. Yeah. Know? And then people will read it and be like, wow, this feels very unfinished. And I'm like, yeah, well, cause it's not a movie yet. Well, and it hasn't been done. Yeah. It's just been, we, we, we've got a, we've got a road. Yeah. We will get to, we'll get to the end destination soon enough. That's right. This thing's just a map. So I started with Borealis and I, I guess my first question is your working relationship with Jonas seems like the age old saying of riding a bike. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, Borealis was uh, was a was a trickier one for us. We did the second film, my second film, Lucid, together. Yes, which uh, I oh man, the whole story is it is it a thriller? Yeah, it's a paranormal thriller. Okay, yeah, I'm looking very forward to watching it because the lead female actress in it, um, I remember her from um, well, a curling movie that she did with Gross. Oh yeah, um, Michelle she, Nolden. Michelle Nolden. Yeah, she was 
comedic genius in that movie. She's great. The stoic that comes from her as an astronaut mixed in this curling comedy. Um, but those are the two I really wanted to do. But okay, so, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. So, but, with but, Jonas. so Jonas and I wrote that together. Jonas had the original idea. Yeah. Um, and then I sort of, he brought it to me and I was like, yeah, it's really interesting. Cause he was like, you know, now that we've done one, would you consider directing this one? And I read it and I thought, yeah, you know, it's missing kind of this and this and this. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, well, if it was me, I would do this here and that over there. And I would change your whole second act to be this. And he was like, oh, we should write it together. Let's write it together. Yeah. Right. And so I was like, okay, let's write it together. So we wrote it together. Um, and we agreed on all of the broad strokes. Uh, you know, and we get ideas and we bounce them off each other. It was a very good relationship. But when it came to, when we got telefilm money and we were now stampeding towards production, uh, prep was coming up and we were doing our final pass in the script. You're in sixth gear and you're getting ready. To, then it yeah. gets down to like, this joke is funny. No, it's not. Like it, like the lines, the individual little ton of details. The minutia. Yeah. And we just, we couldn't agree on any of it. And we'd gone in as 50-50 writers. Oh boy. And so it just was no end of fireworks and conflict and sparks and, you know, um, and we ended up, uh, you know, we ended up making it as one does, but we thereafter decided that henceforth, we would continue to work together, but one of us would officially be the writer and one of us would officially be the suggestor. Okay. Uh, and that would be our relationship. And so b depending on the film, one of us did actually the writing and the other one did the suggesting. And that doesn't actually mean that the writer did most of the work on some of these films. You know, the suggestor actually came up with more of the stuff. Yeah. But the writer was the one who decided this goes in, this goes out. I was going to say the, the, the sharing of the workload because I see a running theme with everything that you do, the comedy, the kooky, the, the, the dark humor. Like there's, and these are things that I love. Like I, I have fallen off the path of independent and experimental film in the last couple of years and my, my wife loves the stuff you make. Oh, wow. And so it's pulled me back in and, and I went in, I was like, I'm not going to watch these trailers. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to have an experience with them. And it, every the, the running theme is the Churchill, Flin Flon, Winnipeg, Gimli. These are when you're asking for telefilm money. Is is there a is there a run in where you you say, hey, I want to make a story about this place called Winnipeg, and someone's like, Winnipeg, you know, like, do you have is there conflict there with that? Because we're we're both biased. We're from here. We love this stuff. So when I see things like like Jonas and his daughter driving up to Flin Flon and fucking up because they get to the end of the road. And he was like, Oh yeah, we flew in on our, on our honeymoon, but we didn't drive here. Like that is quintessentially a Manitoba road trip gone wrong. So when you pitch these stories, do you have a hard time selling the Winnipeg aspect? Well, I mean, it's, this is, it gets to the essential, I think, push pull that makes film, uh, not only in Canada, but everywhere, a kind of a, a dynamic medium, right? I mean, yeah. there's this, uh, cliche that the problem with film uh, as a as a an art is that it's actually a business, and the problem with film as a business is that it's actually an art, right? And so, every film that you make, you're pitching telefilm Canada. I mean, not every film, but I mean, when when they're involved, you're pitching you know public agencies, uh, Telefilm Canada and Manitoba Film and Music, and you're talking to Cavco and you're talking to all these different agencies, and you're pitching them on your film. But at the same time, you can't make a, a movie on just that money. It also has to have some private money. So you're also talking with distributors and broadcasters and exhibitors and foreign sales agents. And they, Telefilm is happy to hear about Winnipeg and Gimli. 
a foreign sales agent does not want to hear about Winnipeg and Gimli. Yeah. Right. And so you get into this weird world where you end up developing kind of two sets of pitches as you're developing your materials, something that pleases, you know, the government and also something that pleases sort of the private sector. Um, and it ends up being really neither when you finally make the film, but, um, yeah, pitching Winnipeg is like Winni- Telefilm loves stories about Winnipeg. Yeah, I, they and, love them. and I saw at the end of all the credits, like Telefilm and all, everybody who's involved. And yeah. I, I, I do work with on screen and Manitoba Film and Sound and stuff like that. And they are amazing organizations for Manitoba Film and, and music and stuff. But then I do know also that, you know, you make a movie, there are some silent partners, there's some other outside financial investors who they're like, well, if you're going to get this, you have to put my wife in it or some bullshit like that, right? <laughs> so when you get to the Winnipeg part, I mean, it must be a. Because it's it's it comes off on screen amazingly, right? But in in the in the pitch process, I could imagine it would be like, well, what's this Winnipeg you speak of, sir? Yeah, and and certainly more so when you're in the stage that I'm in now with my new one, which is taking it out and trying to get people to see it, and you're talking to press, and you're talking to you know newspapers and radios and TV stations and whatever else, and you're trying to sort of sell this movie. Uh, I have never done an interview, I swear, in 20 years of making movies, I have never done an interview with an organization from Toronto where they haven't at some point asked me, so why, why Winnipeg? <laughs> right? It's like they just don't get, yeah. like, you know, there's, we're sitting right here in Toronto. I mean, why would you, I don't, yeah. Winnipeg, I don't get it. Yeah. Right? And so you're constantly explaining why we make movies about Winnipeg in Winnipeg. But, uh you know, I think it's an essential thing to do, and it gets right back to where we started at the beginning of this talk, where I talked about growing up in Winnipeg yeah. and looking up at the screen and going, I don't see myself, and I don't see my town, and I don't see my experience or my culture on these screens. You're a, a amazing ambassador for it. Like, it's 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 genuine, it's balanced, it's, it is, it, everybody can relate. Like, I'm I'm watching these movies, and I'm hearing these jokes. Like, my favorite scene in Borealis was was Jonas's line where he was like, well, you're breaking our agreement. You're not supposed to smoke weed in front of me. And <laughs> and, and I'm, as you tell me that you got, you, there's the suggester and the writer, is that from you? Is that from him? Because there's very personal scenes in some of these, and knowing that you're a writer-director, where are you pulling these? Where, like, where, where are some of these? Tell me one of these suggestions you made for Borealis and which one made it to screen versus what was... Well, Borealis was originally a short film called Blind that I made. Okay. So I wrote the story. Okay. Uh, All right. And, and, you know, I wrote the story of a dad and his daughter and she was going blind and he, he rented an RV and they did a trip across Canada. The original short film... And you can find it. It's online. It's everywhere. Okay. Um, it's uh, actually of all my of all my films. It's my wife's favorite. And I was like, "What? It's a short film. What do you mean? It's your favorite?" Um, I'm better an hour and a half. Come on. <laughs> but uh, you know, but in that film, it was a trip across Canada uh, from Moncton to the Rockies. Okay. Uh, and where in Borealis, he wants to show her the Northern Lights before he before she loses her sight. Well, and her name Aurora, Aurora Borealis. Yeah. So was... yeah, that's all that all of that came in the feature. Okay. Right. In in the short film, he's taking her to the Rockies to show her the most beautiful thing he's ever seen in his life, which is the Rockies. The ending is the same, uh, right? And yeah. the, and the you know the rock the sort of journey of dad and teenage daughter coming it's about to the terms. It's not about the end. Yeah. 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 And the, the missing mom and coming to terms with that and all of that is in the short film. It was it I, I it was pulling at my heartstrings. Oh, I'm glad watching him fuck up continuously and just be like the poker scene where he's like throwing like there are some very like I it's awkward I couldn't turn away and I like I like it when my back's up against the couch when I'm like oh this is hard to watch because it is so real 
it is so genuine. And and that was that was it. Emily Hampshire. I mean, that's Shit's Creek fame, which she's now gone off and been yeah. fantastic. How did you? How did she come into your life? Because she's small part in Borealis, but the lead in my yeah. sexual, my awkward sexual adventure. I mean, I have always been a fan of Emily Hampshire. Uh, she, I saw her in like one of her first films, yeah. uh, and it was a very small Canadian film that nobody really saw. And I remember thinking, like, "Oh my God, who is that? Look at how, like, as as a director, I'm watching this actor make. I mean, there was a scene in this one film that I remember, one of her early films, where she knocks on a door, and the choices that she made about how she knocked and what she did with her face and where she put her hand, and they're just like all these little micro choices. I was like, she's so interesting to watch. Like everything she does is just slightly unexpected. Her facial gestures, her 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 nonverbal cues are fantastic. Yeah, but I mean, just just as an actor, because you can sort of say as a director, you know, I want you to cross the room, I want you to cross it, whatever. As though there are minds under the floor, like very very silently, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. Yeah. But ultimately, the actor is still in charge of all of the little the minutia of it um and you know and that's really what defines an interesting or uninteresting person to watch right yes for you know sure. keanu reeves very famous actor very uninteresting to watch totally right cardboard yeah uh, but but emily hampshire oh my god everything she does i i want to watch her so we saw her in these two uh very small independent films from toronto and we tried to get her into lucid oh, okay uh, and we couldn't get her um, and so, so awkward, uh, we were told by some people who had some money in the film, private money, not public yep. money, that we had to cast somebody super sexy, uh, as the lead. And I sort of said to Jonas, how about Emily Hampshire? And we were back and forth on it. At first, Jonas was like, what? Are you crazy? Emily Hampshire? She's sort of quirky and odd. And she yeah. makes these, that's that's a crazy choice. And I was like, is it? Is it a crazy choice? And I kind of went home thinking, yeah, maybe it's a crazy choice. Meanwhile, Jonas started thinking, Emily Hampshire. <laughs> and so we got back together and he was like, I love that idea. And I was like, no, no, you were right. She's wrong for the part. And I was, he was like, what? No, you're crazy. She's great for the part. <laughs> I was like, really? And we did a, we did a lot, right? And then we, we'd switch again and I'd go home and I'd be like, oh yeah, maybe he's right. And <laughs> Jonas he, was thinking yeah, the same yeah. thing. <laughs> oh, maybe Garrity's right. Maybe he's maybe she's wrong. Anyway, we were kind of back and forth, but eventually we came together and we decided she is absolutely the best character for that. The best actor for that, precisely because she's not a, a blonde model-looking glamour queen. She's yes. an in, interesting character with depth, and the way that she she handles her roles is just so interesting. Her going from being a stripper to wanting to be uh, a chef, and and her like there's there's depth to a character. And as soon as you see stripper, you're like, oh, that's don't even give that person lines, right? Like, so you've you definitely nailed a romantic comedy in a way that normally isn't talked about and i wonder there are some incredibly awkward sexual moments in that movie mm-hmm. okay there are and i loved it because those are real people's awkward sexual moments i'm not going to say which ones mine are but <laughs> <laughs> i want to ask you do you, how much responsibility do you feel talking about something that is so personal while at the same time something that can be laughed at because laughing at it gets you through it right well i mean that's you know that's the good stuff yeah. It, it really is. I mean, I, you know, I am much more interested in, you know, this is not in any of my films, but I'm saying, for an example, and you're writing a story, if someone comes to me and says, I have a great story and it's about this guy and he's in the army and he has this big sort of scene where he has to save uh, orphans, uh, you know, and cross the enemy lines. And someone else comes to me and says, I have a scene about a guy who masturbates to Disney films and feels shame. <laughs> I am so much more interested in that movie, right? 
um, because it's 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 intimate and it's relatable. And I I feel like that kind of stuff is not that just like not just sexual stuff, but stuff that is more intimate and more emotional and more grounded uh, in how we live our lives day to day. It's just much more interesting material. And I think, yeah, I want to see it more. And I'm lucky enough in my career to have made mostly the kind of movies that I would like to see as a viewer. Um, and so that is my answer to your question. What was the most positive effect that came from this? Because it's a very personal journey for both characters to go through. The opening scene was ridiculous. I was laughing my head off from start to finish. Like where, he, where she like the argument about how they need to go and his like one two. Like it's just <laughs> like there's so many things in it. But I, I imagine like what was the most positive thing that came off a set or off telling that story for you? Like when you when you were well, I mean it. The mixed blessing of that film was that it was, you know, to date, by far my most popular film. Okay. So we, you know, we sold it in 24 countries and it was translated into 15 languages. Yeah, I, did, I read that. I was like, that's a lot of languages yeah, for a film. Yeah, and they remade it. They we at first we didn't believe that that was that we thought our sales agents had messed that up somehow. Yeah. That Lithuania wanted to maybe buy it and he'd gotten it wrong, but he didn't. They wanted to buy the rights to the story and remake it. So it was going to be the story, instead of a guy from Winnipeg who goes to Toronto, has this sexual awakening, and then comes back to Winnipeg, yeah. it was going to be the story of this guy in Lithuania <laughs> who, who goes to London and connects with a Lithuanian stripper working in London, uh, okay. has his sexual adventure there, and comes back to, to Lithuania. This, but same, same film. Um, and they actually made it, uh, and it ended up being the number three or number four film in Lithuania that year. Like, not... Lithuanian film, just film, period. Beat, Whatever. Beat Lord of the Rings that year, beat Argo that year. That's beat, so like, crazy. It was a huge film in Lithuania. Um, and they sent us a copy of it, and they were like, oh, we don't have English subtitles. Is that okay? And we were like, no, we kind of know it's okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, we knew. But, but some of the crazy things in that film were just all of the little choices that you make as director yeah. that you don't even think about, but that, for example, there was a scene... Uh, in her bedroom, uh, the woman, not the stripper, but the fiance, yes, is in her bedroom. Lovely girl, <laughs> yeah, she's great, Rachel. She, she's yeah, so fantastic. Yeah, uh, she, she nailed being oh, an absolute bitch. Yeah, she's then the stuff that we cut out. Man, let me tell you, so <laughs> so funny. She had us in stitches. We, but we, there's a scene where she's looking into her mirror. Yes, uh, and she, there are pictures of her life with with the main character yeah, kind of yeah. taped around the edges of the mirror like petals on a flower yes and she has this kind of moment where she's like damn it i know what i need to do i need to go find him the reason that the pictures are taped to the edge of the mirror like petals of a flower was because when the grips were moving the mirror into the room they cracked it and i thought it felt a little more low rent than what i wanted her to be as a character to have a big crack in her mirror yeah that says you know she's living in a crappy apartment so totally people extrapolate from yeah. that and so we so we pasted we took the pictures that were originally on the wall we took them off the wall and we pasted them around the edge of the mirror so i'm watching this lithuanian remake <laughs> and i guess they thought that there was some kind of content related metaphoric value to that so they've got all these pictures painted you know pictures awesome. taped to the mirror but that's an example of one of about a thousand decisions that as a director you make that i saw these lithuanians imitate in their film and it was a very freaky yeah thing to watch i would imagine right because it's it's nothing to you but it's something to them and now it's something to you when it was nothing to you yeah and, and, and i yeah. i made a decision because of some practical stuff on the set at the time yeah and they would then you know attribute value to that there's art in this right right uh, what did you think of their remake 
Uh, it was it was very interesting. I mean, they you know they they cut out. I shouldn't say like not rated. I what I mean is, what's it like watching something that you've done remade? Like, remade the, the compliment of a cover, right? Yeah, like Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah is just been done by my mom. Did a cover of it. That's how many people have done that song. <laughs> totally. So when someone covers your story or wants to retell your story, what is that? Yeah, that's obviously very very flattering. Yeah, um, and but that's not the end because after the Lithuanians remade it and it made so much money for them. The Ukrainians remade it. There's a Ukrainian remake of this that that exists and is out in the world and did very well for them in the Ukraine. Um, and as we speak, they're doing one in India. All right, that is that's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, right? Like a, a film about some of the most ridiculous incidences in sex, in India. How are they going to do this in India? Well, that's the interesting thing. I mean, it's it's interesting that the guy was like very clear. He's like, we're not Bollywood. This is not a Bollywood movie. He's like streaming services. Uh, and HBO is, I think, the biggest one in India, actually, yeah. as, as opposed to Netflix. But streaming services for Indian films are are very, very big in India. And racier material does much better there. Okay. Uh, and so, because they're all so repressed that they're like, give me access. <laughs> I guess. Um, I, I, I don't know. But I mean, but the guy was like, so we are specifically searching for material that's a little racier than a standard Bollywood movie. And so, you know, he he bought the rights and they are remaking it. I uh, I want to see all three of these. I'm going to look for it's, them. I you know I, it's one of these things where you say, I, how many Winnipeg movies have been no no like, remade, remade like that. nobody goes and goes. There's this lovely Winnipeg story about going down <laughs> on your girlfriend properly and learning uh, like the 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 journey that Jordan goes through. Jonas's character is is one, and I can even like I think every guy can relate to one of those scenes because having the conversation with your parents is hell. Like, I remember the first time I had a sexual conversation with my mother, I had seen Wayne's World for the first time. And it's the scene where they go, Wayne, do you want anything? And he's ordering Chinese, and his response is, I'll have the cream of some young guy. Fast forward to me in the Kildonan Place food court with my mother. The lady goes, what would you like? I said, the cream of some young guy, please, not knowing that what that meant. Oh, really? Totally. <laughs> what, were you six? Yeah, something like that. I was. I, my mom didn't let me watch a lot of shit. It, long story short, um, those scenes... I, I I I can relate to very well. So is 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 that something that jo, like where is he pulling from personal history? Are you are you asking your cast and your crew like where some of these scenarios like I'm just curious to see where the inspiration comes from some of that awkwardness. So for that one, Jonas came to me and said, "Would you be interested in doing a you know a sex comedy?" And I was like, mm, "No." Uh, and he's like, but I got one. Would you read it? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay. So I read it and I was like, yeah, eh, I don't know. All these jokes seem pretty juvenile. And he was like, but what if they weren't? What if we worked together and made them less juvenile? Yeah. With Stop kind of- being dick and fart and being a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. having some, some meat to them. Uh, and so, you know, that's kind of where it came from. Jonas was very, yet yeah, there was a moment where he wanted to do uh, a trilogy as his sexual dysfunction trilogy, three movies of three stages of life of sexual dysfunction. He never... <laughs> We never got anywhere with that, but this was to be the first one. Um, and he he brought some of his experiences to it. Uh, he had a he had a very sexually experimental girlfriend, um, way way back uh, in in Winnipeg. And he uh, he a lot of the places that she sort of took him and a lot of the experiences. Okay. That, so he he kind of based a lot of the set pieces around that. In fact, the rub and tug scene. We, we we shot it in the actual rub and tug where Jonas's actual like experience actually happened. 
Well, me and Jonas have a very shared experience. Oh, my God. I was punked by a friend of mine. He asked me, you ever been to a bathhouse? I said, no, I've never been to a bathhouse. He says, well, there's this bathhouse. You should go check it out. Sit down there, talk politics, talk life, you know, sit there and have a sauna, go home. So I go in. And I'm completely clueless, right? I'm seeing the the, the well-built naked men on the wall, the, the wall of sex toys. Like, I am so clueless into this. Long story short, I heard a lovely, uh, passionate session going on in another room, and I thought, I thought somebody was being hurt. So I came running out of the sauna, and what I realized when I saw what I saw was a bunch of men and a bunch of women, and they were, in, you know, very much in love with each other. Mm-hmm. I realized what was up, and I ran. And after that, I had a friend who was like, I don't believe you. I don't believe this place exists. And she hounded me all night long. And it was like 11, 12 o'clock. We were leaving. We were leaving a bar. I was like, do you really want to go? And she was like, yeah. So I'm like, okay, I've been once. And I laid, I laid the groundwork, right? I was like, I've, I've, I've only been once. I was there for like half an hour. I left. I didn't do, like, I, I didn't do any of the things that you can do at these places. And we get in there and the guy at the front counter goes, oh, hi, Michael. Nice to see you again. <laughs> And she looks at me and I was like, I don't know how this guy remembers my name. So, I mean, I get being in those awkward, like, that's why I'm like, this is, this is not to get too personal, but it's clearly pulling from somewhere that he's experienced and, and it's coming across the screen perfectly. Yeah. Yes. And so, so yeah, you know, in that one, he uh, brought a lot of those experiences and, and we reworked the script for years. I mean, originally the, the basis of the story originally was a Jewish guy marrying, wanting to get involved with a, a non-Jewish woman and his very orthodox family being upset about that. And at the, yeah. end, at the end of the story, he decided he should just marry a nice Jewish girl and that was the end. Oh, you never do what your parents tell you to do. Unless they enroll you in film school. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> or or maybe, who knows, maybe there was a different history waiting for me that was more interesting. Yeah. You'll who, never you, know. You'll never know. Um, but so so that was Jonas's original script for that movie. Um, and we... Basically, over years, we kind of passed drafts back and forth and worked as suggestor writer and, and kind of made it become what it was sort of in the end. Right. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of his. Yeah. A lot of his original experiences were based on stuff that he that he did. But I think the, aside from the rub and tug, that may be the only the one that's actually don't, yeah. <laughs> don't come. Don't <laughs> come. It may be the only scene left from his his original kind of personal experience. Uh, as, it, as you chisel away yeah. and get down to the final draft. Right, right, right. That may have been the only scene that, that actually survived. Um, but, you know, that was that was sort of that one. Yes. Oh, and we never, we never, well, there's just not enough time in the day, I suppose. Yeah. Because yeah. I was going to say, we never talked about Zoe and Adam or Blood Pressure, which is my favorite of my films. If you We are going to do a follow-up. Yes, well. Because very good. It's, it's worth it. Um, so anyway, so let's move to uh, I Propose. We never see each other again after tonight. <laughs> I love the title. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like, did it take you a while to get to either making the longest title of the movie history or not? Like, what were, <laughs> did you play around with a couple other names? Or I did. I mean, I, I titles... I'm not very good at titles, and so uh, I uh, I usually wait. Uh, you know, we'll have a working title, but then I wait until the last possible minute uh, before I actually sort of start announcing the film, um, or submitting to film festivals, or talking to distributors. Like I feel like once you've put it in an email and you've sent it out to somebody in the marketing world, and that's Lizzie. that's it. Then that's the name of the film. That's the name of the film. So, uh, what is the film about for anybody who doesn't know? Well, it is a rom com, uh, and it's very based in kind of Winnipeg iconography. You start with pushing a car in the winter <laughs> out of a snowbank. That's right, a stranger's car. Everybody in the movie theater that I was in loved it. Oh, that's so great. The hands, the clapping, there was so much, oh, 
yes oh my god morden like it was perfect but go on yeah there's so i mean you know i i really over the years you know one collects ideas i do anyway and and when i get an idea that i think is really a great idea for a scene or a character or whatever i'll i'll write it down and i'll kind of put it in a file somewhere and then once in a while you sort of organize those files uh, and I was I was growing for many years. I was growing a file of a Winnipeg movie, a Winnipeg rom-com. Um, and I just kind of was waiting for the the spine of the story to hit me that would allow me to go and access all of those ideas and see how many of them would sort of fit in this thing. And when I moved back from Toronto in 2017, because um, we lived there for a few years, uh, and I moved back to Winnipeg, and I was overcome with kind of an affection for Winnipeg, as one is when yeah, one moves yeah. back, right? Yeah. Um, and I kind of thought, oh, I, I feel like this is the moment to, to do this movie, but what would the story be? And I sort of thought it'll be a rom-com and one of them has to be Mennonite and one of them has to be Filipino and it has to end at a wedding social. <laughs> and so that was the, that was the, the inception of the idea. And if anybody's ever been to a Filipino wedding social, it is the most joyous events. <laughs> so great. It's so great. It's so much fun. The food is fucking fantastic. Like, and, and, I, and Manitoba social. Right? And, and I also feel like, like the Filipino wedding social is like the ultimate, uh, the ultimate expression of, um, multiculturalism gone right. You know, like when you yes. look at the concept of multiculturalism in Canada and what that was meant to to be and the promise that it held, I feel like because they don't have wedding socials in the Philippines. No. Right. This is a Manitoba thing, but a yeah. Filipino wedding social, it's its own thing. It is. And it only exists in Winnipeg as a result of the Filipino community in Winnipeg. Yeah taking something that was here and turning it into something of their own, but that is now all of ours. Exactly. And now whenever a friend's like, yeah, my friend's getting wet and, he, and you hear about it, you're like, I'm going like, I, yeah. I need, I need tickets to this. I won't go to my friend's normal wedding social where they give away a jet jersey and all that shit. I want to go to this one. Cause it's a cultural uprising of, of so many things. Yeah. So we're like for anybody who, who wants to see this movie, what, what's the basic story of it? I mean, it's, it's the rom-com is, is a basic rom-com. They yeah. fall in love. Um, you know, we spend the first act with them uh, kind of exploring their characters and seeing their 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 backstories. And, of course, uh, you know, our main guy's friend who is secretly in love with them, unbeknownst even to himself. He was such a good buddy comedy character. <laughs> oh, my God. The, the fucking, the, the, the St. John's ambulance scene is so on point, man. <laughs> I'm so glad you thought that. Oh, my God. Did, did, did you get an erection? <laughs> What? It's not a big deal. <laughs> well, I love and I love the guy. Like it's just because when you have kids, you get this all the time, right? Do you have an erection? The guy's like, no. It's like, what do you mean? It's standing right there. Like you know, and, and raising a daughter, you get that with kids as well, right? Like, like, like there's, the cookies are gone. They've got crumbs all over their, their shirt. Did you eat these cookies? No, no. And there's like one still in their hand. Totally. Yeah. No. They're like, maybe I'll get away with it. I'll say anything. No, those those little breaks in the construction crew guys like as their construction not working like it's just there was so much in it that what it you say rom-com i see love story sure i see a funny love story i see a one harry met sally i don't see your traditional rom-com because it it doesn't oversaturate the mm -hmm. romantic side of it it is a very i went inside with a buddy of mine and all like the 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 set, the first meet cute is great, right? The pushing of the stranger's car out of a snowbank, 
but when and I'm sorry, I I'm horrible with memory here, but um, so we have um, Iris and Simon, the two Iris years. and Simon. Thank you. I was going with their actual human names, but Iris <laughs> and Simon, yes. Um, so Iris and Simon, when they meet for the second time in the Linland Grocery, yeah, and then it was like, oh, hey, Winnipeg, small city or whatever, right? But when he when she leaves and he texts. Is it too soon to text you? I actually had a tear come down my eye. I was like, that's, I've, it's coming down my eye again right now. Uh, <laughs> my wife, um, I met, and I called her nine hours after mm -hmm. I met her. Because I don't believe in the two, three, four day rule. Right. So those are the things that, as much as it is a traditional, by standards, IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes rom-com, it is a real life love story with, tragedy and loss and banana sauce like you said it's banana sauce no it's ketchup it's banana sauce no it's ketchup <laughs> and it is ketchup have you had it it's no. like is it ketchup it just tastes like ketchup really but they use b b bananas instead of sugar that's so funny pretty much tastes like ketchup a little bit a little different but pretty much um and and having like i i believe winnipeg is the biggest um transplant of filipinos outside of the philippines i'm not sure about that i know within canada they are the largest population per capita. So one out of every 10 Winnipeggers is Filipino. Cla claims Filipino heritage. There are more like in actual numbers. Yep. There, there are more in Toronto and there are more in Vancouver, uh, yeah. but a larger population. So a smaller percent in Vancouver, there's still 6% of Vancouver is, is Filipino. Yeah. That's which a, is still huge. Yeah. Right. Um, and in Vancouver and in Toronto, I think it's 5% or 4% or something. It's still also huge, very big. 4 million in the GTA. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, the thing about the the Filipino population that I hadn't really noticed until I was finishing this film up is that they are really very present uh, everywhere in Canada. They are they tend to be like a really essential piece of the the cultural fabric wherever they live. Like Winnipeg, Winnipeg without Filipinos is not Winnipeg. Nope, it's right. I mean, that's you know, and and yet. Where's the other movie aside from mine with Filipino characters in it, or the other TV show, or the, like there is none. No, and you're like, wait a minute. Well, how did we like? How did Winnipeg make movies for 20 years and like not have any Filipino characters in them? That's kind of crazy. And I'm as guilty as anyone else. I made you know seven movies sure, here before yeah. this one, and I I cast Alan Castanaga in one, and I've, I've cast one or two, and I've worked with Stephanie Sy and stuff, but I I don't you know. Is one out of every ten characters that I've put in a movie been Filipino since I'd no no absolutely not. Uh, and so it feels like, I think in the free press, Randall described it as this, you know, this kind of treasure hiding in plain sight. Very much. That's a great description of it. Um, the sub, the lack of subtitles. I mm -hmm. wanted to ask you about that. Now, my guess is this is what it's like to be in a home where you don't understand the language. And this is how it really is, as opposed to making it understandable across the room, which I appreciated because I was like, okay, this is breaking a barrier, right? It's teaching you that meeting a new family, meeting a new culture, learning about them as the audience, you might not understand everything, but I still understood everything. That you see, that's what I get it. Of course. Fuck. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that's, I think you, you, you grow up in Canada and everybody either comes from a house with two languages or has a friend whose house is yeah. two languages and you go to their friend's house and mom and dad are speaking in a mix of English and the, whatever the language is, Hungarian or Spanish or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and the kids are usually responding in English to their parents. Yes. And you're sitting there and you're like, okay, I get what's going on. Like I totally, there's enough here. yeah, I, there's enough for me to understand what's going on through the facial gestures and the tone, yes. the voice and the everything else. And even though I don't understand every word, I, I get it. I was getting shit from the patriarch, the mother who she was fantastic. Like the, she's amazing that. And I, and I know that because I do have friends from other backgrounds and other cultures and 
family's just not a thing for for white Canadians. Like we we have it, but we don't have it where it's so rooted in our community and our weekends and everything that we do. Like, and and I, I, I you drive through a park on a Sunday, you'll see fifty people. They're all Filipinos. They're having the best time of their fucking life. My family has never done that <laughs> ever. Fifty of us getting together on a and, like, repetitively, and it's so buried. So watching the mother and Iris fight back and forth about how she's kind of stepping out on the family, so to speak, because it's not within. And like she obviously married a Filipino boy originally to make mom and dad happy. Like there's a lot of other things that aren't in a normal rom-com. Sure. And I think, you know, the relationship between the mom and Iris was something that we worked a lot on with, with both actors, Mithus and, and Hera. Uh, and a mom, who, because I really love the idea of not a mom who's like angry or a mom who is, you know, angry at her for somehow breaking out of the culture, because I don't think that's really a thing in Winnipeg. I'm sure no. it's a thing for somebody somewhere in Winnipeg. Yeah. But I mean, generally, I don't think that's a thing. Um and so we worked on this thing, which you kind of get at the end of the movie, I think, where the mom, the mom's issue is that she let her daughter do whatever she wanted because she thought that was the best path forward. And her daughter made a big mistake when she was 19 and she saw her daughter making the mistake and didn't stop her. Okay. Right. And then the daughter got really badly hurt by it. And the mom is just like, I'm not, I'm not going to let that That's happen interesting. again. Okay. I did miss that. I, I, I just saw on the skin. Right. right. And, and I loved it because it it made for Iris standing up for herself and, and being like, no mom, like this is my life, right? This is my choice. And what I loved is I looked at Simon's, I looked at Iris's page. These are not, they don't have a lot. Like, where did you find them? No, they, they're amazing. They're great actors. I'm so, I was so lucky. Hera was, I mean, Simon, I just auditioned actors and we had, we had a number of actors who would have been really good in that role. Christian struck me as, as the best um i was down to three uh, and actually we i'd already cast hera as as iris and so i was down to three and i couldn't decide which of the three i liked best they were they were very different from one another so it would, they would have been very different simons uh, but they're all very very good okay uh, and so i brought hera in and we did uh an audition with hera playing off each of the simons okay um, and at the end so I, I was able to see hera together with the person who would be the romantic male lead um and after they'd all left, I kept Hera back and I was like, so which one did you like? Which, who's your suitor? Yeah. Uh, and she, she was so petrified of like losing somebody a gig. She was like, oh, they're all good. And I was like, yeah, but you must have liked one better than the other. She was like, she was like, no, no, they're all like, they're all the same. They're, you know, each one of them is their own thing. And I pushed her and pushed her and pushed her until there was one moment where she said, there was that moment when Christian turned around and looked at me with his blue eyes and I just felt my heart stop. And I was like, Christian, it is. Christian, it is. It is. Christian is the boy. Um, and so, but Hera herself, we had, you know, I, I went to casting directors in the city and said, okay, I have a film with 29 characters. 20 of them are Filipino. So I'm looking for 20 Filipino actors, which means I want to see 60 to 80 people at least. Yeah, you right? need a good sample To, to get, you know, yeah. And all these casting directors, great people, good friends of mine, working very, very hard. But just the way that things go in this city, you know, they were like, I have five. 
and I was like, okay, well, that's I read not that in the CBC article. Yeah, that's not going to cut like, it, yeah. right? Like, yeah. how am I going to? So I started digging and talking to people and talking to the Filipino actors that I did know and Filipino friends of mine who work in the industry and just sort of saying, who do you know? Yeah, that is a good actor, not necessarily acting as a profession, maybe, but just like a good actor who's got some personality, who's yeah, got some character, who's got. And, it's, and I just started bringing people in. And, and one thing about the Filipino community in Winnipeg that I love is uh, other places that I've been, India, Japan, wherever else, you know, you go to even just take a picture of people and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. But the Filipino community, I'd be like, uh, okay, hi, I'm a filmmaker. And the first thing is like, can I be in your movie? <laughs> like right off the bat. Super enthusiastic. I love it. No and, work, yeah. Yeah, so so I, you know, it was very easy to get people who were interested in being in it. And we brought in, you know, again, we, we did ended up looking at 60 to 80 people. But I found them. They were they were everywhere. I worked so hard to find them. Mom and dad are perfect. Mom and dad are perfect. They, aren't they don't they partake in like events and and stuff like they're they're in the community. Yep. As a, as a MCs, you hire yes, them together. Yeah, they yeah. do they do karaoke. They play off. They're playing off each yep. other. Was I was up at Seafood World the other day, and mom was calling bingo there. Really? Like, oh yeah. That's you know they're like you have an event in the Filipino community. You need some MCs. These I are love that people that you call. Right? Oh my god. Yeah, I love that place too. It's like Langanese sausage for oh, yes, like just a cooler full of it. I'm gonna tell you a story about them in a minute that you're gonna love. Okay. But Hera comes in and auditions for a, a day part. She auditioned for the part of the the daughter in Morden. Yes, okay. Very small part. <laughs> You're from Winnipeg? Yeah. <laughs> you look lost. <laughs> you look lost. Are you from Winnipeg? Are you Filipino? Um, and so the, so the daughter, so that, that was the part she came and auditioned for. She came in in her first audition I just you see it what you, you see in see, what you see so in the film see it yeah what you see in the film is what I saw Charming, in that room I was like just I was like I need this woman to be my lead yeah but I, I was like but am I sure so I kept her I said let me play let me let me play you off somebody else you yeah. stay I'm gonna bring in another actor and you're yeah. gonna play off of them and then we're gonna bring in another actor and you're gonna play off and we kept her in the room for half an hour auditioning her <laughs> and when she left I was sad to see her go like I I enjoyed watching her and I was sad to see her leave. And I turned to my casting director and my co-producer, Nick Christie, and I was like, I'm like sad to see her go. And they said, me too. I like really am sad to see, like I loved watching her just She's, now. Uh, it, I was enamored. I couldn't. Yeah. So I left my chair. I ran out of the casting room and I managed to grab her before she left the building. And I said, would you be interested in being the lead in this? You came out and auditioned for this really small part. And you may have read this already, but she said, uh, Actually, I'm going to play. Yes. So there's a conflict. I can't actually be the lead in your movie. I'm really sorry. And and then she walked out. And I was like, uh, but no. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm not done with you. Yeah, but no, because you are the movie. Yeah. Like you, I just saw it in that room. It's, it's you. You are the movie. So I called her and I was like, hey, uh, you know, I just kind of sprung that on you when you were leaving the room. Very unfair of me. Uh, listen, I know you're in a play. Have you started yet? And she's like, no. Have you started rehearsals yet? Nope. Could I convince you to leave that play? <laughs> I was like, because this is like a movie and you're going to be the lead. And it's going to be on TV. It's going to be in theaters. And, and you know, I, I'm sure they could find someone else to replace you in the play. And she's like, I'm the lead. I'm like, well, that'd be even easier to replace you in the play. Who wouldn't take that? She's like, no, no, I promised them. I'm really sorry. I love the Like, she did think about it. She, I, she, I almost got her at one point, but she was like, no, no, you know, I signed a contract. I promised That's them. That's incredibly solid of her. Yeah, very solid of her. Yeah. Uh, she's like, maybe if you could like, you know, shoot around me on weekends or something, but otherwise I, I can't do it. And I was like, damn. And so I left it a couple of days more and then I called her back again and I was like, how about this? How about this? What if like, I get it that in Winnipeg, if you're an actor and you walk away from theater to do film, that's a black mark on you. 
Yeah. It's hard to get work again after yeah. that. So what if I called them first? Because I know them all at the theater. Where you're, <laughs> like, I know all those guys. In fact, one of them used to go out with my sister. It's Winnipeg. Yeah. I was like, what if I called them and said, I have an actor that I want to cast. She's in your upcoming show. And, and, and sweet talk them. And if they said, that's fine, that's great, we wouldn't hold it against get her. Get their blessing. Yeah, get their blessing. Then would you do the movie? She's like, let me think about it. I was like, okay, think about it. And I waited a day. And she called me back the next day and she said, I thought about it. No, I won't. I uh, no. I, I promised Para. them. I, I promised them I'd be in the play, so I'm going to do the play. So I turned to my crew and I was like, "Guys, could we shoot weekends? Like, would that work?" Uh, and the crew, to my great and eternal gratitude, okay. said, "Yeah, Sean, we've been working nonstop on all these American shows and TV movies. We don't see our families anymore. the The idea that we could five like, days yeah, of family time, five and- days of family time and two days of work that would actually right now be perfect for us." So we shot on weekends to shoot around Hera's schedule because I was not letting her if not she, be in the movie. If she never wants to act again, she should be a negotiator. <laughs> like, seriously. <laughs> so one of the things that, that is kind of a benefit, I think, of that is that you see the season change. You do. Over the course, because we shot it chronologically. So we start in the darkest heart of January. Yeah. And the movie ends, like the last scene we shot, I think, April 27th. And so you really see that that change in Winnipeg that is so kind of m- marvelous, really. It's yeah. one, one world to another world. It's a rebirth of yeah. snow and death and, and cold. To, and and yeah. seeing as the film deals also with secrets and revealing things and uncovering things... I, that's I get it, and, yeah. And and Simon, in, in a sense, melting away. I mean, there's I think a lot of metaphoric value to it ultimately, sure. which was just kind of a bonus of yeah. shooting around Hera's schedule. But yeah, that's where I that's where I found Hera and and Simon. I, mean, I take my casting very seriously. I I read once that it's the most important decision that a director ever makes, and I know, don't see how it couldn't be. I don't disagree with that. So yeah, I I you know we spent a long time casting, but I'm very pleased with the cast we ended up with. Oh, they're they're fantastic. Um, his. <laughs> so there is one scene that I uh, had to take some issue with, and and I'm going to call you out on it, but uh, it's, it's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the blind dates that she went on the mm-hmm. the and I love the technology aspect where you, sh- you literally swipe and yeah. the guy leaves the seat. But you went the first one's a podcaster. We're not all <laughs> douchebags, Sean. But he wasn't a podcaster. <laughs> I know he, he was a yeah. wannabe podcaster. Okay, you're right, you're right. But my buddy just looked over at me and start. He fell out of the chair laughing. <laughs> I felt this big in the because th- like podcasting's the new thing, right? Like it's it's on the it's it's on it's riding a wave. So. Whenever I see it in a movie or something, it's oh, I was like, okay, I'm gonna we're, we've got to bring this up. But what I really wanted to know was the premise for their first date. Mm-hmm. That is something that because first you 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 talk about a lot of things in that first date scene, admitting things about yourself too much, too soon, too fast. These are the three things that all humans worry about in a, in, a, in a world of dating. So there's a romantic in you that obviously exists somewhere to see these things or to have gone through them. So where did the idea come from for let's just put it out all on the table? Like, is that is, is there is there something there or were you just trying to mess with the uh, the 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 traditional ways of dating? That scene, the first scene where she basically says, listen, I'm, you know, in the title of the film, I propose we never see each other again after tonight. So yeah. we can just tell each other whatever secrets we want and then we walk out into the snow and we'll never see each other again. Yeah. Um, came from an experience that I had. Okay. Uh, I used to live in Argentina as, as we discussed. Yeah. Uh, and one day I was uh, in a bank changing some dollars to, to Australis, which was the 
currency at the time. And you have I have to say that every time you give change. <laughs> Australes, yeah. You have so four Australes. I uh, I uh, met this Canadian couple from Vancouver, and we just got talking while we were waiting in line, and they were backpacking, and I I was living there in Buenos Aires, and they sort of said we got talking about stuff, and I was you know I'm in film school here, and I'm connected with all these young artists and they said oh that would be so cool and I said well you know it's a party tonight like I'm going to a party with a bunch of Argentinian artists it's gonna be kind of cool and they were like oh could we like tag along and I was like sure that'd be fun that'd be like that'd be great why don't you why don't you tag along let's meet in front of the old opera house at this time it's Argentina so parties start at like one in the morning yeah so I was like let's meet in front of the old opera house at like 11 we don't know how to party here <laughs> we, like, we close the bar when they open the party that's right I was like let's let's meet in front of the old opera house at 11 have a coffee whatever some some beers and then we'll and then we'll go to this party so at 11 she shows up with no boyfriend and she sits down and she's like, yeah, he, he's actually my fiance and he, he has this stomach issue sometimes that, and so he, Boo you know, earns. yeah, so he kicked up with him and he couldn't come out. He wanted me to go out and have fun. And so, you know, so she sat down and she started talking about the boyfriend and she said, I got to tell you, I'm actually, even though we're engaged to be married, I'm actually, I'm having an affair. And I was like, really? Wow. And she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she felt she could tell me because. She doesn't know you. I'm some guy from Winnipeg living in Argentina. She's from Vancouver. Like, when are we ever going to see each other again? Totally, right? yeah. So she started spilling, and I was like, I got to tell you something. <laughs> and we just, we closed that cafe down. Basically, at 4 o'clock in the morning, we were still sitting there. We never went to the party. We just spent all night telling each other. I love that that's rooted in that. Yeah, and, and you know, it, again, it, that was one of those things that went into my idea file. Of yep. Like, someday, I gotta yep. put that into a movie because I think it was just such a magical moment. I think if I ever actually ran into her, I'd be terrified. Yeah, yeah you'd be Simon, right? Cause totally. Because like, he, he even says in, in the grocery store when they meet again, he was like, was that too much? You know, like, how do you, how do you come back from that? But it is essentially the best way to start mm-hmm. any relationship right like just put it all out there but we're so reserved and we're so scared of rejection and and all that stuff that it has to be a perfect stranger otherwise too much too fast too soon yeah and, and i hope that in a certain sense it also sets up and just in terms of the structure of the of the comedy yeah you know here are the obstacles that you're going to have to overcome they they kind of explain to each other basically before the game starts. Yeah, like I, bef- I I leave randomly and then he leaves randomly with and, and as soon as I saw him and these are the things that I my brain picks up on, um, putting on his robe mm-hmm. and being in such a distressed state. Is that what you is that what you were trying to show? Is that he doesn't have a single clue of what's happening? I just need to go. So a robe and socks is all I need. Yeah, and out he goes. And out he goes. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and the and and the flashback. To her sitting at the at the door saying, please, like begging for him to come back and you don't know he's out there. And then it cuts to her the rest of her day and how it affects her. She goes to Morden. She pines after him. I hope I'm not ruining this for too many people. (laughs) Uh, Go see it either way. It'll fucking rock you. It'll bury itself in your heart and it won't leave. But um, and then it flashes right back to Simon being outside. I thought that was a really interesting way to cut and show both stories. Is that how do how do ideas like that? Well, it's you know it. One of the things that I I enjoyed with this film is that it is a rom com, but I love story. I, I'm going to argue. Love that. You. Okay, that, no, that's great because I I don't I don't color inside the genre lines. 
very often. Yeah. Uh, I'm just not very good at it. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a Winnipegger. I come from this kind of experimental Petri dish of films that we do here. <laughs> yeah. And I bring that to the rom-com. Like, okay, why don't we, what happens if we just jump backwards in time to explain a different thing that happened and have parallel timelines? Like, yeah. the audience will get it. Yeah, you no, know? It, to- it, it totally, it comes across very easy because it's not like a, it's not like a Nolan movie where it's 50 of those. No. Right? <laughs> it's one quick, easy cut and it cuts away. And and one thing I want to say before I have to let you go is the realism of the love is great. The big gesture at the social, as, as soon as she says, I've never seen somebody with a stand-up bass before. And I looked at my buddy Jason, I went, that bass is coming back. <laughs> and now that I know you're a bass player, I totally get it. And I was like, every rom-com is always so over the top with the gesture and mm-hmm. the final, like, you know, this is me. Jerry Maguire bullshit and you're like nobody has the funds the time the effort the idea the wherewithal whatever you want to call it to get that done this is a guy who's like I just need to play bass two notes two notes on top of that I just need to play two notes at a social and show that I'm willing to do this and I was like that is the perfect gesture so back to it which you didn't answer where does this romantic in you come from because even if it's in the kooky in borealis even if it's in the sexual aspect of my sexual adventure and even if it's with this where it is like you say a love story like there's there's something there that just hmm. and i think you're as a filmmaker you have to be a romantic not in the love sense but just in the grand gesture of it yeah, I. It's interesting that you that you say that. I've never had that question before. I mean, I guess if I think about it, I mean, you know, I like to believe in the redemptive power of romantic love. I I do. Okay. I, I you know, I think that there's something there, corny as that sounds. Nope. That's that not. you know that you can lose yourself in your lover's arms, and for a second, everything's okay. Yeah, and that's. I think that's at the end of the day, that's what everybody really genuinely wants yeah and so i mean i think in, in a, a lot of those examples that you just pointed out i do i do allow my i indulge myself giving the audience that moment, yeah right oh I, I it's the one thing i was like running theme i see this here um when is it playing till and where can people find it if it's not in theaters is there going to be a place where they can find it eventually or is that yes, yes. i mean because okay. podcasts live forever i guess so, yes so we're recording this in august the end of august yep. of 2020 yeah on planet earth yeah um I and think so yes <laughs> And uh, it'll play, it's playing in Winnipeg. It got extended by a week because yep. uh, it did very well in week one. So we're playing until September 3rd. Okay. And then if people manage to go out this weekend, it'll play for another week. Um, it's not like we have much competition at the moment, which go is great. Go fucking see it. The theaters are safe. <laughs> I was in one. I brought my mask. I was ready to be a little uh, anxious, but it was an incredible environment. It's not dangerous to be in. I mean, I know today 55 cases, yesterday 32. It's not... It, don't let that stop you from seeing a fantastic movie in the way it's supposed to be seen, which is in a movie theater. It opens September 4th uh, in Toronto on two screens and in Vancouver on two screens. Um, and then um, Edmonton uh, the week after that and Calgary. And we're just kind of looking at it sort of no further ahead than that. I mean, the idea, my idea is to play it in as in as many places as I can. Yeah. Um, there's some really interesting during the pandemic, there's some really interesting upside down world stuff going on, not just for everybody on the world, but, but also in theaters yeah. where normally Canadian films can't get a screen, uh, ever. Right. I was, I was wondering about yeah, that. Normally can, we can never get a screen for yeah. our films. Sorry. Right? Sorry. Avengers. Sorry. Yeah. Harry Potter. You know, sorry. You, yeah. So usually we end up playing us like you played in Winnipeg, you play the Grant Park or the Cinematheque or the small screen that you can find for yourself. Yeah. 
Um, but during the pandemic, they've been playing, you know, reruns of Pluto Nash from a DVD <laughs> or something. I know. So, so, and those are not making much money for them. And, no. and so, you know, you bring a film, a Canadian film, you do some marketing and you bring some people in and they're like, oh, that's making more money than our other stuff. So we'll keep it. Uh, and not only will we keep it, could we play it in some of our other theaters, exactly. right? And so that's where we have a, a an, an interesting little opportunity to get it out yeah. um, in theaters right now. And uh, and an interesting opportunity to play it in more than one theater, which never happens. 20 years, eight feature films, I have never opened on more than one screen. Congratulations. Per man. city. But because it's the pandemic, I mean, I said to Mongrel Media, my distributor, I was like, could we open on like two screens in Winnipeg and he was like that never happens I'm like yeah I know, I know it never happens but could we like, there's nothing could, yeah. there man could, could you ask Cineplex I mean the worst they can say is no and he was like I'm gonna ask them but they're gonna say no and he called me back and he was like okay you're on two screens that's awesome um, and so now I'm trying to push him for four screens in Toronto let's we'll see we have listeners all across Canada so wherever this is going to play for you, there's somebody somewhere. So if you're in Edmonton or Toronto or Vancouver, I implore you to go see a fantastic movie about our hometown, about love in our hometown, about loss and banana sauce and everything. That, that I was like, that's a catchy article, CBC. Way to go! Um, but it's Hannah and and si- sorry, Hannah and Christian, Hera and Christian, Hera and Christian. Sorry, the toque. Who who came up with that toque she was wearing? Uh, she, she has it. She has owns it. it. A friend of hers made it. That's even more why she needed to be in it. Like it, it I, and the hips. Sorry, one more thing. The hipster element with with Simon. Whose mm-hmm. was that? Was that you? Which hipster element? The the the, the boots, the short tight jeans. Like just, oh yeah, like a Mennonite. In my, like one, of my best friend is Mennonite, right? Mm-hmm. So he wasn't raised strict, but when you think about coming from a small town like Morden or Winkler and in, in in the Mennonite belt. Um, it does. They don't. They don't come across as your traditional hipster guy. So, when but that's were... that's I think what they want to be though when exactly. they come to the city, yeah. right? Like yeah. they, you know. And there is this sense of Winnipeg. We're so spoiled in a sense because we we get the inside scoop on Mennonites. Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, because we are so tight with that community. And you talk to people in Toronto or Vancouver and say, you know, my guy's a Mennonite, and right away they're seeing a guy on an ox cart with a suit, and you know, and it's like, no, this no. this. And so the, a, a big part of it for us was showing. This downtown hipster, right, who wants to be a jazz bass player, and he's a Mennonite. It sounds like most of the Mennonites I grew up with. Yeah, no, it's it's it plays, it works, it's 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 based in reality. It's not a stretch. I just I I love that it wasn't your prototypical, right? right? So it it did give, it give it gave the character more likability. It gave him a little bit more depth instead of like watching him fade from like like that's like Kingpin with Bill Murray, you mm-hmm. know, right? Where like he's the, the traditional Mennonite or Pennsylvania Dutch, and right? Right? It, it's Amish. funny. Yeah. it's on, but it's not believable, right? So yeah, Sean, this has been an absolute blast. Yeah, um, likewise. Is there anything you want to share about what? people could look forward to from you anything you want to promote uh you know no other stuff coming up i mean the main thing is you know i propose we never see each other again after tonight is going to be in theaters throughout the fall uh november we come out on vod every kind of vod and then after that we're on crave great uh and we'll see where it sort of goes from from there but uh, yeah i mean it's it's it'll be in theaters for the fall and then it will live in infamy it, well wherever it'll yeah, yeah where, live yeah. out in the cyber world forever it'll i live in infamy for me man like i i <laughs> I will buy it. I will own it. I will tell the world to fucking watch it. Oh, thanks, man. Definitely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of The Real Debaters. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with us and this is your first time, you can find us everywhere on social media. It's at Real Debaters, R-E-E-L is the spelling because we're cheeky like that. 
Uh, if you want to email us, you can. TheRealDebaters at gmail.com. Keep that email handy because we're going to start reading some of these emails online from people's opinions of our show and the debates we have. Uh, I have been Michael Petro. My guest has been Sean Garrity. And we are gone. Thank you.